0: Hey guys, today we're going to be reading my book Fake Diseases, originally written in 2021, updated and expanded in 2022. You can find this book on Amazon or on my website, noticebooks.org. Notice is spelled not us, so that's notusbooks.org. And there you can also find all the links to all my social media sites, all the other books that I've written and helped publish, and the free audio and video versions of all of my books. This recording is part two of this audiobook. Of course, if you have not seen part one, you can find the link in the description of this podcast. And you can find the full video version on YouTube, once again, on my website, notusbooks.org. Fake Diseases by Ryan Alexander Chapter 8. Autoimmune Diseases I'm going to take a curveball approach to this chapter. And I'm going to tell you this part of the story in more detail, or else you might not believe me. Years ago, we had a booth at a small health fair. It was at a large church in the small town I lived in. It was like a farmer's market with produce, but there were also various alternative advocates there promoting all kinds of things. There were small honey farmers, yoga instructors promoting their businesses, and people like us selling packaged supplements and giving out information. There were a few speakers inside. But I didn't see them because I was outside at the booth. Like most health fairs, it was pretty quiet. So I was talking with the other vendors and checking out their products and services. I like to hear the pitch, whatever it is. And vendors are great prospects for my business too. To use the washrooms, we had to go inside the church. To go inside, I was told that I could not bring in any device that had a signal turned on. If I wanted to go inside, I had to show that my phone had airplane mode turned on, data and Wi-Fi signals turned off, or the whole phone off. I had never been asked to do this before. The explanation was that one of the speakers claimed to be extremely sensitive to electronic signals. He was there to give a talk about electronic frequencies and radiation. I decided I was going to speak to him after his talk. Conveniently, he came out to our booth and introduced himself. He used very simple language. He could feel the signals. It could be described as annoying or uncomfortable or even painful, which is why he requests a room free of it. But, he said, the real importance is long-term. Whether you can feel it or not, it's there. And it could be affecting the body all the time. He wasn't crazy, by my observation. He was straightforward and reasonable. I would call him a straight shooter. A bit kooky, but I probably am too. I liked him and I enjoyed his story, and for the first time I thought about invisible energy waves radiating from everything around me. I went home and looked out the window at the cell phone tower across the river, suddenly seeming ominous yet I hadn't really noticed it before. I never saw that guy again and I didn't do much research. I was busy with other things, but I began to pay more attention to electrical devices. I didn't know if I was playing tricks on myself or whether I could really feel the computer mouse buzzing my hand. I began to feel that I was becoming more sensitive just by paying attention. The buzz or hum of different devices around my apartment began to bother me. When the refrigerator was running, I felt unease. For a long time, I told myself that I was making this up because I was expecting it. My increasing awareness didn't cause any pain or discomfort. In fact, my pain and discomfort had almost entirely disappeared since I had started the nutrition program I was promoting. But it was more and more annoying. I felt that I was pretty tolerant of difficult conditions. I have lived in very cold and very hot places. I have dealt with serious infections. I have conquered chronic pain. And I felt confident in traveling almost anywhere in the world by myself and with little money. The growing annoyance from the electrical devices seemed eventually to challenge my patience and resolve like no other challenges in life ever had. Because I couldn't avoid it. Once I noticed it, it was everywhere around me. I felt paranoid and I knew that describing this whole thing would make me sound crazy. I didn't want the bed near a wall outlet. I didn't want to sit near a fridge or an electric oven when it was running. I didn't want my phone in my pocket or near my head. I had never been particularly picky about music quality. I cared whether I liked the music or not. My father was an audio technician and a musician, so maybe I picked up some things. But until this point in my life, I was content to listen to the music I liked on any device that was convenient. As I became more sensitive to frequencies in general, I found that digital music began to sound off, flat and lifeless, like distilled water without salt. Sometimes it sounded offensive. I liked the music, but not the sound. My favorite music didn't sound right on the computer, or mp3, or CD. It sounded fine on my analog vinyl system. Somewhere in this time, I was visiting my mother. At the local flea market, I saw that one of the vendors had a product from the company I was promoting. I stopped to talk to him about it. He was an enthusiastic distributor as well, but that is not what his booth was about. He asked me if he could try a demonstration with me, and we did. He proved to me that my balance was terrible in general, and that it was even worse with a phone in my hand. I couldn't argue with it. Then he put a magic disc on a cheap nylon strap on my wrist, and did the test again. He was twice my age and easily twice my strength, but with the magic discs and the same test as before, my balance and strength was incredibly enhanced against his force. My first skeptical instinct was that he might have been yanking my arm out sideways on the first tests, making me look very easily toppled, If he had aimed straight down on the next test with the magic disc, then I should appear much stronger. But it was no trick. My girlfriend was there watching. We did it multiple times, and quite honestly, I trusted the guy as soon as we started talking. I felt he was hard-headed but genuine. I felt he really believed in his magic bracelets. I didn't buy anything from him. Back at my mother's house, she told me that someone was renting her garage for storage. There was a car and a bunch of other stuff in there. I didn't think anything of it. It turned out that that guy renting the garage was the same guy at the flea market selling the magic bracelets. His name is Mike. The stuff in the garage was his summer car and all his stuff behind the flea market business. I called him, and he came by the house. We introduced each other more formally, shook hands, and he made me a steel bracelet with two magic discs attached as a gift, right there on the driveway. I didn't feel much when I put it on, and I also wasn't paying that much attention We were in town for some event, and we were on the move. I kept the bracelet on, and we went back to our little town. Soon after, my girlfriend at the time had her wisdom teeth taken out. She was in bed with swollen chipmunk cheeks, in a drugged stupor, and I thought that letting her wear my magic bracelet might help her a bit. She saw the demonstration and was just as impressed and puzzled as I was. You hear of carnival trick quacks at flea markets, but you really don't often encounter them. I gave her my bracelet, and the moment I took it off, it felt like I had taken the battery out of my back. It felt like my body was telling me directly, put it back on. I didn't have a lot of money at the time, but I called Mike and asked if he could give me a deal on another bracelet. He did. I have worn one ever since. Until this point, I can't recall really believing that fate had much to do with the turn of events, but meeting Mike would end up being very important to my path in the alternative health world. And this will bring us to why we are talking about this when we're supposed to be talking about autoimmunity. Back in my little town, that girl and I had broken up, and I was in a sort of despair in an empty apartment in an end-of-the-road type of town that I had no roots in. And I didn't know what I was going to do next. I don't remember if he called me or I called him, but I remember standing there in my empty living room, looking out across that nice little river, and at that ominous cell phone tower, as Mike told me bluntly, I'm out of this place, man. I can't take all the hassle out here in East Toronto, all the traffic, all the stress. He said he was moving to Windsor, Ontario, a small industrial city across the river from Detroit, Michigan. His daughter lived there, and he had a location picked out to open a store under the same guise as the booth at the market. He didn't ask if I wanted to join. He didn't know my situation, but my lease was coming up, and I didn't want to pay for the place anyway. I told him I'd pack up and go with him. At this point, I still really didn't know anything about electromagnetic frequencies, or EMF. And I really didn't know much about the Magic Discs, either. I was still rooted in nutrition, and I was there to help him sell all the different things he had, including our supplements. Since I had really only seen his demonstration once, when he did it on me, I hadn't had much exposure to his process. And since I wasn't at the market long, I hadn't really heard the entire pitch. When we met, we mostly talked business or talked shop. We had even been on the radio together at some time along here, and we still hadn't heard each other out entirely. But now I got to hear the entire sales process, and I had a lot of questions. Mike kept mentioning testimonials for health problems that I was taught were entirely nutritional. My head was already spinning about this, and I had already begun going through a bunch of books on radiation to catch myself up, when one day at work Mike mentioned one of his testimonials about lupus. I really had to step back and sit down, Most of the claims he was making were about physical problems, and I still had a lot of questions about that. But the symptoms of lupus are mostly digestive. Blood sugar problems, circulatory problems, and a low-grade allergic type of experience in the body is the basic description of a lupus patient. Inflammation all over, basically. The guy he was talking about was on video giving his testimonial, but as usual, Mike said his real off-camera testimonial is even more amazing. Long story short, he felt a lot better extremely quickly, credited to a frequency-tuning disc. But this is lupus. He didn't do any nutritional changes. I didn't understand. Mike is more of a mechanic than a technician, so he wasn't really able to explain it either. But he was able to tell me that he has other similar cases, so-called autoimmune patients, who felt much better in many ways very quickly with the addition of the magic discs. As I dug into this one case, trying to justify an explanation as to how this person could achieve this result with an anti radiation device, I had a few realizations. The first usual suspect is placebo. It really is an awesome healing tool. But this seemed too dramatic. The guy was very overweight, very obviously experiencing serious digestive issues and circulation issues. His cheeks were red with spiderweb patterns typical of lupus. He looked like he was having a low-grade allergic reaction, typical of lupus, and he reported that this was constant for him, as expected. I have to reserve the power of belief as a factor in any major transformation, and I expect that strong hope that something will work and desire for it to work will greatly enhance the benefit they experience. But I was not willing to credit belief with this transformation. I had been around the healing business just enough to have dealt with a few autoimmune people by that point, I knew that they were tough cases. They had to change their eating habits. They had to put in a bunch of nutrients. And this has to take time. Cells don't regenerate overnight. Healing and digestive strategies take time. It just shouldn't be possible to turn this around in minutes like they were all claiming. When I first met Mike back at the flea market, the first real question he asked me was if I had any pain. This was part of his process. Often, the person did have a pain and they could point to at least one chronically painful spot somewhere on their body. Mike's strategy was to tape a disc to that spot immediately, and then carry on with answering their questions about his live pain-free banner, and he would be moving towards doing the demonstration as well. He did this because he knew it was likely that the pain would disappear in the time they were talking. He would bet that in the few minutes he had with the average person, that in that time he could eliminate at least one pain. This is an amazing thing when you think about it. We are not taught about this type of thing in nutrition. In nutrition, I expect results, but not immediately. In a few minutes, I can barely expect to make a proposal and a transaction, let alone a result. They have to take action and continue for the expected feel-better part of the deal. If there was a five-minute method, it felt like we were wrong about nutrition. There was an explanation right in front of me. It was in the books, and it was in my life. I knew people who did live blood analysis. They look at blood in real time, live. I knew that blood cells could crinkle up and clump together under many forms of stress. It suddenly made sense. All this nutrient stuff I was taught about was transported in the blood. Digestive problems could cause blood problems. We call this dirty blood, or sticky blood. This is basically leaky gut. Undigested food particles getting into the blood via the intestines. The blood correctly responds to these foreign food particles, supposed to have been broken down further and chemically altered in the digestive process before being absorbed. The blood clots attention around these undigested food particles, and this causes an overall congestion problem in the blood. Like white blood cells attacking a sickness, the bodies of cells and pathogens add up to a mucus we call dirty blood. It is almost like an allergic reaction, or the body responding to a virus. That's one way to have compromised blood. Another is to have a nutrient deficiency severe enough to affect the blood. The body will take nutrients from virtually every system in the body before it messes with the blood. A problem in the blood is a huge problem. If there's not enough of the right stuff for blood to function properly, the body will fail catastrophically. Every blood deficiency has a disease named after it. But even under good conditions, when there is no digestive problem, no dirty blood problem, and the person is supplementing with all of the essential nutrients in optimum amounts, we can see in live blood analysis that healthy blood can crumple up, stick together, slow down, and look visibly terrible compared to healthy blood relieved of the stress. This was it. That is the answer. If radiation can affect the blood, and we know it does because live blood analysis shows this, then all of the nutrients, oxygen, sugar, and waste products that the blood needs to transport around can be compromised by this. Electronic devices have increased in use to the point where everyone has something on them, or near them, sending signals and attempting to receive them. The fields are invisible, but they are all around us. Voltage traveling through wires has increased significantly over the decades. All of this is a more stressful environment for us to operate in. It affects our blood cells and they are responsible for transporting every other important thing you can name in and out of the body. If someone's blood is fully impacted by this radiation stress, then relieving that stress alone can show a near-miraculous result very quickly. The discs aren't magic, and they have a mechanical explanation, but I wasn't satisfied with the explanation Mike gave me for the relief of symptoms. He said that the discs were charged with frequencies, the same frequencies as our bones, nervous system, and muscular system. This is assumed to enhance our own energy fields, protecting us against harmful ones. He had some lines memorized by Nikola Tesla about frequencies, and he focused on the demonstrations and whether someone stopped shaking or felt pain relief as the conversation happened. I also saw him bet many times that letting someone take a sample bracelet home for the night would bring them back for a purchase. Not only did most of them come back and return the sample, most of them also bought a steel bracelet with the discs installed. Many of them remained highly skeptical, but continued to wear the discs. I was used to standing beside doctors and professionals and talking seriously about health with people who are in serious condition. I am used to having solid mechanical answers for them. I was not comfortable pitching magic discs that relieve pain just because of magic energy. But now I had a mechanical explanation, relieving the blood. I stayed in that town long enough to see many hundreds of demonstrations, witness and meet many testimonials, and do many demonstrations myself. Many people tried to fool the discs, but they couldn't. They work under a steel-toed boot. They work if you slip it in someone's pocket and don't tell them. They work on dogs and cats having mobility trouble in old age. I don't think a dog has any expectation or placebo response to a frequency-tuning disc. If they had serious trouble going up the stairs, or had lost that ability, and then can quite suddenly go up them with ease, something has changed. Dogs, like people, require time to heal injuries and rebuild tissues. But they can also be impacted by the radiation in our homes and in our modern world. The point of this long divergence is that my time in this part of the alternative health business, the anti-radiation world, gave me everything I felt I needed to finally understand health problems in our society and what to do about them. In my time with the discs, I have heard and seen things I know make us sound like liars for saying. I've seen people stand up from wheelchairs who were nearly completely immobile moments before. I've met people who walked into our store with crutches and walked out on their own two feet. We have had people with many varieties of cancers and autoimmune diseases report incredible turnarounds. Most of these people did not buy our nutrition products. Most of them did not change their lifestyles. These are regular people, most of whom have lived in that blue-collar town their whole lives. In any case, it's a lot easier to sell a magic bracelet than it is a healthy lifestyle as it is a one-time purchase, not an ongoing commitment. This brings me back to what I think is the main difference between cancer and an autoimmune problem. As far as I can tell, cancer is what happens when a catastrophically compromised body fails big time in one system of the body. The liver is dying, they call it liver cancer. The skin is messed up, they call it skin cancer. It's a growth in the brain, it's brain cancer growth in the prostate, prostate cancer. We've seen many things that can contribute to system failures. Digestive problems can lead to nutrient deficiencies and dirty blood and blood sugar problems and circulation problems. Nutrient deficiencies can exist without a digestive problem just by not having enough nutrients in the diet. Those nutrients are responsible for every system in the body, so if there's not enough, there's a problem somewhere in the body. Selenium also happens to be one of those key nutrients involved in both the liver and prostate, by the way. No coincidence. We've seen that stress of all kinds can impact the basic ability of the body to maintain and repair itself, and we've added electronic frequencies to that list of possible stresses on the body. So when it happens in an identifiable system and the allopathic professionals don't have an explanation, they call it a cancer. When the body is failing in multiple systems or is a general immune problem, I believe they call it an autoimmune disease. Now, there is a complicated aspect here having to do with antibodies. We're going to talk more about blood markers, which is what I prefer to call them, in the next chapter on AIDS. For now, it is worth pointing out that there is no agreed explanation about autoimmunity in the mainstream medical world. They say blood marker antibodies have something to do with it, but not one of their so-called autoimmune diseases have a consistent correlation between the presence of antibodies and the presence of symptoms. This means that some people who have symptoms called an autoimmune disease don't have the appropriate expected blood markers, and some people without symptoms have these markers. To me, this means there is not a correlation, but this is what tests for these diseases are about. We don't need a test to see that autoimmune patients have a problem. By our questionnaire, or by looking at them, we can easily see multiple problems in the body. End note 19. We are not allowed to diagnose people with a disease, but we can ask them about their existing health problems. Some of these questions can change our recommendations, such as a missing gallbladder, or the presence of a stomach acid-lowering drug, or shellfish allergy. I have made content describing the process of asking and answering these questions on our YouTube channel, Wallachs Warriors. Here is the questionnaire we are currently using age, height, weight, sex, country, all symptoms, all diagnoses. Have they had any surgeries, any organs or glands removed? Are they on any chemical drugs? Do they take any supplements, herbs, or natural medicines? Do they avoid any foods? Do they have any sensitivities, allergies? Do they have any skin, lung, or digestive issues? Do they know their blood type? Any sleeping problems? Teeth grinding or sweating at night? Nightmares? Were they born C-sectioned? Are they pregnant or nursing or trying? Do they drink anything carbonated? Do they drink coffee or energy drinks? Optional. Show us a picture of their finger or toenails, not polished. What's their favorite food? Anything else we should know about? Most of these questions can be expected on a form from a dentist's office the first time you want to use their services. They do need some basic information to handle you properly. We can't prescribe drugs, but we should know if you're on any. Return to text. In my experience, there is always bad food involved. Always. There is always a food causing an inflammatory reaction. Even the guy who got the great result quickly was still eating the wrong foods and will still have corresponding health problems. At least he feels better. If a body is failing, there is always a nutrient deficiency involved. The body needs nutrients to heal. If it feels bad, it needs more nutrients. Chances are, the person with an autoimmune disease is on a pharmaceutical drug. The way these drugs are marketed, they say these drugs suppress the immune system, under the assumption that the immune system is attacking itself. We do not believe the immune system attacks itself. We believe there is likely many separate problems going on in the body. Food is probably one. Nutrient deficiency is definitely one. EMF stress can most definitely be another. Our intention is to support the immune system, rather than oppress it. If the body can heal itself, then we want to support that. I took this tangent because we were in the middle of listing everything I would do if I found out I had cancer. I would get strict on my eating, get serious on my supplementing, I would encourage circulation and low-impact exercise and seek a lot of rest and relaxation. But I would also get serious about reducing the radiation around me. I would wear a frequency-tuning disc bracelet. Unlike nutrition, which must be consumed every day more or less, a device can be purchased once, and they can be collected. I wear one on the wrist and one on the ankle, and I don't think I'm going to stop that. I've also now lived far from cities. I've been out in the desert with my shoes off, grounded to the earth. I've taken the bracelet off and still felt weaker without it. So I do believe it has an enhancement effect on its own and I do believe that it is one of the things we should definitely do to reduce the stress of EMF on our body. That's only one device, but it's the cheapest one that actually works, in my experience. There are a few key things that can reduce our exposure. The biggest source for most people these days will be the phone in their hand or pocket. There are devices that can reduce the fields of the phone. I use one, and I don't like to use devices without one. End note 20. I sell a few anti-EMF devices including that patch and frequency tuning discs. You can find them on www.wallexwarriors.ca. Return to text. The cheap ones on the market don't work well enough, or at all, in my opinion. But even with that, I don't put the phone in my pocket, basically ever, maybe 10 minutes in a year, the odd time I have my hands full. The phone never goes to my head. I speak with headphones attached by a wire or on speakerphone. I also don't pay a phone bill, so airplane mode can always be on. Everyone I know and do business with can contact me through a number of different apps, but not by phone number. This is not for everyone, I guess, but I find it great. I pay for home internet by a cable, and most of my phone time I plug the phone into an ethernet adapter. I do use Wi-Fi, and I can run my online business on my phone through ethernet cables or Wi-Fi, or my wire-connected computer. When I go outside, I have peace. The data signal on my phone can be turned off all the time. The Bluetooth is off. It's the best I can do for now. I do travel frequently, and yet I have operated without a phone bill for several years now, and I encourage it. Wi-Fi is also EMF, but it is not as bad as having it in your pocket or at your temple. You can make or buy a Faraday cage that will reduce the output of your Wi-Fi router. In many cases, you can get a smaller router, and it will work fine. You can shield some of the bigger sources with any type of metal plate or foil. Yes, foil. Don't seal off the whole house. And you don't need to wear it on your head, though it would offer some protection. Many people are making silver fabric clothing, including hats, for this reason. They also make EMF shielding paint, with metal in it. In my house, I foiled the wall behind the smart meter and put a bookshelf in front of that. The refrigerator will be one of the larger sources in the house. If your favorite chair shares a wall with the fridge, I'd shield that wall. If I lived next to a cell phone tower, an electrical transfer station, high voltage power lines, or above a subway, I would move. There isn't a way to completely shield yourself from extremely strong sources close by. This is pretty much the last major category of the alternative health world, energy, frequencies, and self-healing in the countryside. The people I had heard who had chronic illness, or a serious diagnosis and basically went home to die, typically left the city and went home to the countryside, away from much of the radiation. The extended fishing trip is away from all the electro-stress in the atmosphere, the constant buzz. The meditation trip is peaceful in part because of this. The singing bowls and tuning forks and grounding blankets, if they help, I would say it is because those frequencies help to relieve some of the ongoing EMF stress temporarily. I am also willing to connect juicing to this. I've already mentioned a few reasons why juicing might help someone feel better, but here's two steps deeper. Minerals are inorganic in most of the world. That means they're rocks, or sand, or shells. In seawater, all the minerals are present in trace amounts, but not in organic form. When a plant absorbs a mineral, it converts the inorganic mineral into a charged electrical form, sometimes called organic minerals, ionic, fulvic, humic, or colloidal. We call them colloidal and promote them with this explanation. In soils, this process requires bacterium and fungus in the soil to participate in the acceptance of the mineral into the root of the plant. End note 21. Pesticides and herbicides and fungicides can nullify much of this process. As a result, plants grown in non-organic agriculture will have less minerals and less overall nutritional value per carbohydrate. The BRICS score, B-R-I-X, is commonly used to measure the nutritional value of fruits and vegetables and berries. BRICS scores are invariably lower with non-organic crops, and invariably higher with additional colloidal minerals added. This can be experimented in any garden. We sell the raw form of our human mineral supplement as garden fertilizer. You might find this interesting. In the agriculture world, you can't pitch a farmer that he will increase his yields by more than 50%. You will sound like a lunatic to the farmer, and he will not take you seriously. They already have very impressive yields in modern agriculture, with standard fertilizers focusing on nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, or NPK. So, we are taught not to attempt to sell our plant-derived mineral fertilizers with the numbers we are actually able to produce. We can achieve much more than 50% yield improvements on probably every crop imaginable. Return to text. The microorganisms in the soil essentially predigest the minerals for absorption into the plant. These are my simple words for a very complicated process. Seawater is full of microorganisms already, and they also facilitate the process in sea plants. These colloidal minerals are interesting and I'm going to hover here for a moment. If you take a handful of sand or dirt or any inorganic minerals and you add them to water, they will sink to the bottom after some time. If you shake it up, it will become cloudy, and then eventually it will settle again. Colloidal minerals have many interesting properties, but the most interesting to me is that colloidal minerals do not settle. The explanation is that they are electrically charged, ionic, and so they remain in suspension indefinitely because they remain repelled from each other electrically. Fascinating, really. It is like perpetual motion, or magnetism, like a refrigerator magnet, staying stuck perpetually. The particles remain there charged apparently forever. I mentioned magic earlier. Well, this is the real magic as far as I'm concerned. Not only are organic colloidal mineral particles much smaller than inorganic forms, the plant-derived colloidal forms also seem to be required for optimal structure and function and longevity, while inorganic minerals are difficult to absorb and many of them can be harmful. Arsenic is an agreed-upon essential mineral for all vertebrates, all animals with a spine but it can kill in the inorganic form. Same story with pretty much every element on the list. It can be essential, and it can kill you in the wrong form or dose. So plants, through plant magic, convert the earth into an interesting electrical form of energetic nutrition. And that's interesting. But they also change the structure of the water. Structured water is another huge topic that deserves detail, but must be included briefly because this is a long list. In my attempt to give a proper summary of the many options available for getting closer to health, structured water has to be mentioned. Clean water is important, but structure seems to be much more important. In nature, stagnant water is bad. We don't want to drink it. We have to do something with it. Boil it, maybe capture the steam, maybe add salt or other things like medicinal tea leaves in the hope of avoiding plagues that can come from bad water. Running water is much cleaner. Water running over rocks creates vortex patterns, spirals, which seem to clean and structure the water. Ocean water also has its own structure. This is the structure used for the product I am most familiar with. There are spiral taps sold as water structure devices. I believe they do help. I believe the water is better if it runs through a vortex before you consume it. There are also receptacles marketed to be shaped so as not to allow the water to settle, encouraging a healthier structure. I do know all of this can sound loony, which is why I included it all in this weird chapter. I'll give one more thought on this before we get back to juicing. At one point in my life, I worked in a chemistry lab analyzing seawater samples. There can be many steps involved in preparing samples, adding reactive agents or reagents, letting them sit on timers, heating them or cooling them, etc. Some tests require that you spin the sample in a vortex. Measuring chlorophyll, for example, each sample had to be spun on a vortex or it would screw up the results. It would measure low. I thought that was very interesting at the time, but I didn't really get it. Since then, I started stirring whatever I was drinking in a quick vortex before I drank it. It seems to change the taste of almost anything you drink if you pay attention to it. So why is juicing so effective? On top of being an easy-to-digest, nutritionally-dense drink that is easy to add even more supplements to, It is typically spun in a vortex before serving. But even better is the fact that the water was already structured inside of the plant. Plant juice is structured water. Celery juicing every day for 90 days is one of the most popular alternative health trends of our current time. This is structured water. We can't eat enough plants to really get this benefit. Most of the liquid we would be consuming throughout the day will be from a tap or bottle or something other than a plant. It takes a lot of oranges to make a glass of orange juice, but that is structured water. We are mostly water. Water is a necessary cofactor for most or all processes in the body. Water is the substrate in which all the chemical processes in the body take place. In the health business, there's a saying to sell water filters. If you don't have a water filter, you are the filter. Wow, it sold me. Filter for life. So clean water is important. The structure of the water is important. We are mostly water, and structured water seems to be good for us. Since we are mostly water, this is most of our energy field, if I have come far enough to use language like this. When we enhance our own water system with properly structured water, we are enhanced dramatically. And I mean really dramatically. I mean a structured water program can rebound someone's health just as well as any other miracle I've witnessed. And juicing is one way to do it. It's an expensive way to do it, but nonetheless. This is protection from stress to our own energy field, signified by the blood. This is witnessed by live blood analysis. Many structured water products use live blood analysis to pitch their water. The blood can be seen to be relieved in real time. To wrap up this segment, I want to be clear that I am not saying radiation is the cause of all autoimmune disease. EMF is one factor that contributes to an unhealthy body. And some people are sensitive enough where nothing else will work if they don't address the EMF in their lives. Bad foods and nutrient deficiencies are practically guaranteed to be involved in any problem labeled autoimmune. And not everyone that I have seen eliminate these symptoms has addressed EMF. But the real amazing thing to me is the people who did nothing except address the EMF and turned their health around. We covered rheumatoid arthritis already, the oddball in the arthritis group and in the autoimmune group. Our explanation is that the rheumatoid component is caused by a bug infection. The arthritis part is partially damaged from the bug and degeneration from nutrient deficiency. This barely has anything to do with the immune system, other than the assumption that the immune system is trying to fight the infection. The other autoimmune diseases are not as clear as this. They're not clear at all. The antibody explanation isn't clear at all. The mainstream treatments are not successful at all. The drugs they prescribe people can do serious damage or kill them. The symptoms of autoimmune problems are generalized throughout the body, usually in the form of susceptibility to illness and basic obvious digestive problems and nutrient deficiencies. After years of trying to figure out how antibodies are actually correlated with disease and what they actually are, I am convinced that I do not understand antibodies, and I have given up because I am convinced that no one else truly understands them either. But I know for certain that everyone being told they have an autoimmune problem has many problems. One could be more of a problem than others. I have heard so many people claim total transformation just by quitting gluten or grains altogether that I cannot count them all. It could just be gluten, it could be catastrophic nutrient deficiency, it could be hyper stress from life or hypersensitivity to radiation stress, more likely is a combination of most or all of these things. Maybe other stresses too. Maybe the cat wakes them up every night in the middle of the night and they haven't slept all the way through the night in years as a result. Maybe the kids are troublemakers and they're losing their hair from that on top of everything. In the public market, we hear about all kinds of stresses. An ongoing infection problem could be a big factor that was overlooked. A fungal infection of some form is likely in everyone I've ever seen with an autoimmune problem other than rheumatoid. But even with rheumatoid, many of them are likely to have a fungal infection problem as well an autoimmune problem encourages growth of all the bad stuff. All of these stresses can contribute and relieving any one of them could feel like a magic bullet for the person experiencing the relief. We recommend approaching health generally. We don't treat autoimmunity because, well, we don't even believe the term makes sense. But we also don't even need to target the problem. We need to use every strategy we can to promote a healthy body. Eliminating the bad stuff, adding the good stuff at appropriate doses, and recognizing that electrical frequencies could be interfering with all of it, by design of modern life. There is more we can do to promote relief from radiation stress, and there are also healing techniques on their own. For centuries, people have left cities on healing trips to the countryside. Some of them left cities because of lung problems and felt the air was cleaner in the country, which is true. Many of them had general pain problems, arthritis, lack of hunger, all kinds of things and they thought they'd feel better in the country, or were given advice from a doctor to go to the countryside. There have always been many theories on why this could be beneficial. When people went out to the country, they tended to go to a cottage, or a manor, or a mountain, or a beach. All of these gets us away from the psychological stress of the city, but some of these we believe to be healing in themselves. The beach is full of negative ions. It is said that the bad energy associated with EMF is positive ions, So negative beats positive. I think they should have named them the other way around, but hey. The air around the ocean and beach are said to be loaded with these negative ions, combating the bad ions, or enhancing us, or however we choose to describe it. I don't think we really need to understand it. The beach has good energy, so that appears to promote rest, relaxation, and healing. Running water has good energy, and that appears to encourage good health as well. Salt lamps, said to reduce EMF stress in the house, also stream negative ions into the air. I find them highly beneficial. Mountains are big rocks. Rocks have good energy. I live in a place called the Canadian Shield. It's a gigantic rock. You put the shovel in the ground and very soon you hit rock. And it stretches down to parts of America as well. The energy side of the alternative health world is much closer to the hippie end of things than I'm used to in the nutrition end. We really are talking about energy and rocks here, but I'm serious about it. We also talk as if the cells of trees act like the frequency tuning discs, charged with good energy that radiate negative ions. When I first went way up north, I couldn't understand why I got so tired in the forest. On this gigantic rock, surrounded by trees in every direction, I felt like I was being waved to sleep. I wanted to sleep all day. This is very unusual for me, as I had had trouble sleeping my whole life. I believe this is the healing energy at work, and I believe it is necessary to know about. It is a much healthier environment, nature stuff, as far as I can tell, than any indoor therapeutic environment. Nature can heal, I believe. The body asking for sleep is doing it for a reason. To become excessively relaxed and tired in the middle of the day is probably the result of something therapeutic. If you look, you will find many people who embraced a natural lifestyle in as many different ways as possible. Something as little as spending time with the feet grounded on the earth can go a long way. Implementing awareness of electrical pollution can go a long way. Trips out to nature can be phenomenally restorative, for both body and mind. I didn't want to reiterate the fake diseases theory here, because I think you get it by this point. None of the so-called autoimmune diseases can really be diseases if they are the result of mechanical problems in the body. Though there is a reasonably long list of possible mechanical problems, we have covered most of them. Doctors get away with labeling autoimmune problems as diseases because they seem to want to treat them, but they don't know how to. Helping a person get better from any of the symptoms on the list of the average autoimmune problem has nothing to do with the toolkit of the allopathic professional. There is nothing to cut out when it comes to an autoimmune problem. There are no useful surgical interventions. There are no drugs that support and promote the body's natural ability to heal itself. And some foods on the food plate, we're saying and screw up the body big time, enough to look like an autoimmune disease. It is up to us who we take our health problems to. Knowing all of this, I wouldn't go to a medical doctor if I had this type of problem. And I wouldn't bother calling it a disease. It is not transmitted, it is multi-dimensional, and none of the routes to real relief are medicinal. Maybe a medicine can help them, but it's not a cure. If syphilis is a disease because it requires treatment by a licensed medical practitioners, then autoimmune problems, cancer, digestive disorders, blood sugar problems, bone and joint problems, and birth defects should not be called diseases. Knowing all of this, we can tackle the final topics. Chapter 9. AIDS. Initially, I wanted to start this book with AIDS. AIDS is, I think, the best true example of a fake disease. I've used the word fake kind of loosely in this book. Most of the stuff we've covered so far is absolutely real. Birth defects are real. Bone, blood sugar, and digestive problems are real. Cancer and autoimmune diseases, while poorly defined, are still experiences that require a name. My problem so far has mostly just been that many things shouldn't be called a disease. The title of a disease is mostly misleading. The legal appropriation of the word disease is necessary to properly categorize things that require treatment from regulated professionals. Most of our list does not meet this criteria, and so should not be thought of as a disease. Most of what we talked about can be easily prevented and reversed. That's important and empowering. But how are we to protect ourselves from a disease that doesn't exist at all? Syphilis is a disease because it requires treatment. Technically, it's an infection, but legally, it's a disease. I prefer to use the correct technical language to describe specific things. A spade is most usefully referred to as a spade, and an infection is most usefully referred to as an infection. I'm okay with syphilis being classified as a disease, even if it doesn't help our understanding of the problem. All infections should fall under the legal umbrella of professions equipped to deal with infections. The market should be protected from false claims about real diseases. This is a big part of the point in legal terminology. Classifying something as a disease not only determines who can treat it, but also what we can all say about it. None of us can go on TV and talk directly about a cure for cancer. With the mainstream understanding of cancer, or the one we have covered here, it is not appropriate to talk this way, and this is legally important in the modern world. I believe in the free market, and that people should be able to make their own informed decisions. But if we do have medical regulations, they might as well be used to set the appropriate boundaries for talking about medical things. This isn't censorship as much as it is agreeing what words mean. Agreeing what words mean is part of the foundation of law. Disease, treatment, and cure are serious legal words. If disease can mean any health issue, we will have a problem unless we are equipped to deal with health issues. If health issues must be treated, we must go to a doctor. If a doctor can't help, we still have an issue. If they make it worse, you get the idea. So that's my problem with calling chronic illness, chronic pain, birth defects, and body failure disease. My bigger problem is in completely made-up diseases. Syphilis is an infection. It infects us. We show symptoms. We take drug. Drug kills bug. Infection is over. Infections can be cured. AIDS is supposedly caused by an infection with HIV, a supposed virus. I say supposed because there is no absolute proof that a virus causes the problem. And there is no absolute proof that what we call AIDS is even real. They say there are two strains of lentivirus that can cause AIDS. If the supposedly HIV-infected person gets worse beyond the arbitrary limit, they now say they have AIDS. So AIDS is the name for the HIV patient in poor condition. Syphilis is killed with a drug, but the H-viruses are not. HIV, HSV, HPV, and dare I say, even hepatitis, A, B, or C, are incredibly ambiguous diseases, and I am not even sure if any of them are real. Antiviral pharmaceuticals have terribly unpredictable results with the H's. There are a lot of people out there now claiming that terrain theory explains all viruses. I think they have a lot of good points. Viruses are all around us, inside of us, everywhere, all the time. Bacteria and other potentially dangerous pathogens are also around us all the time. The only major difference is bacteria, fungus, worms, and so on all have cells, while viruses apparently do not. It is quite easy to know that we have been infected by a bug it turns out to be quite a bit more difficult to prove an infection by a virus. It is even more difficult to prove beyond confusion that a therapy actually works against a virus. The single most effective treatment for virus infection is grandma's recipe. Rest, heat, liquids, and time. I feel like keeping the quotations around infection when talking about viruses, because it does not seem to be clear that AIDS is actually an infection. The same problem exists for antibodies. I have many problems with the way testing is done in the first place. The guy who invented the PCR test, Kerry Mullis, also publicly doubted the efficacy of the test in use for disease diagnosis. Nonetheless, even if the tests were 100% accurate, we still have many leftover questions about the unpredictability of blood markers. People can still carry blood markers long after any sign of an infection with an H-virus has vanished. This is not the case with bacterial infections. If you beat a bug, it's gone. But infection with an H-virus seems to be able to affect us forever. Most people infected with any virus, usually a flu of some kind, tend to get better with time, regardless of the course of action. If time passes, they are likely to get better, with or without medicine. Most honest doctors will answer about viruses the same way we do. If you've already got symptoms, there's not much you can do. It has to pass. Very few compounds will speed up this process. We can support the body's ability to defend itself and give it more nutrition. This might ease our misery. But the sickness will still need time to clear. Usually around two weeks, more or less. Kids, adults, elderly, all need time. This is not true for syphilis. If you leave it, you will get worse and worse until it becomes life-threatening. If you still do nothing you will probably die from the infection actually this isn't completely true we have probably all heard of the tuskegee experiment where the united states public health service and the centers for disease control left a group of 399 men with syphilis untreated this is commonly used as an example of the big bad government and i agree that it is a highly unpalatable part of our history But what isn't often mentioned is that several of those untreated men lived with the syphilis for a full and long life. One of them, Ernest Hendon, lived to age 96, which is much more than the American life expectancy during those decades. Even though I've used syphilis throughout this book as a classic example of a real qualified disease, it isn't completely clear that syphilis is life-threatening unless there are other factors contributing to an unhealthy body. Mr. Hendon must have done several other things right, including getting enough minerals and vitamins to be healthy, and avoiding some or all of the bad foods on our list. I assume he still put his wood ashes in the garden, or consumed them directly, getting his plant-derived minerals, and since he remained untreated for his syphilis, I assume he also avoided other medical treatment, which is a good thing if you want to avoid death by medication or surgery. A blood sugar problem will not go away by accident. Something needs to change. Aches and pains and rashes can come and go, but chances are the frequency of appearance will not change much unless the lifestyle is changed. By this one factor, time, we see that viral infections are different in at least one important way from all of the other diseases we have seen. No matter what the PCR test says, if we give it time, we are not likely to suffer long-term. It's a bit weird to think of it this way, because AIDS is only promoted with fear, but all symptoms related to viruses do seem to pass, if they don't kill us. I am very doubtful that viruses, or at least retroviruses, infect us in anything close to the same way as a bacteria or worm or fungus. We are told that viruses use our cells to host their DNA, but everywhere else we look on Earth, we see viruses. Animals can fail rapidly like humans under bad conditions. They can appear to be suffering from viral-type illnesses too. But the terrain theory holds that this possibility is always there. If we become too far from healthy, we are susceptible to begin looking diseased. It is not easy to prove a negative, but they have also sold us this disease without proper proof, in my opinion. The test they use to look for markers of this disease is questioned by many of the people involved with creating it including the main guy who got the Nobel Prize for it. I expect that he understands the test better than I do, and he says it's bogus, in my translation. I am not the only one who has doubted that HIV-AIDS is an infection. In 1993, Dr. Robert Wilner famously injected himself with HIV-infected blood multiple times in multiple cities. He said that most AIDS deaths were actually caused by the immune-suppressing drug AZT. Which was the main treatment for AIDS. He wrote a whole book about it called Deadly Deception The Proof That Sex and HIV Absolutely Do Not Cause AIDS. The controversies behind PCR and false positives could be a book itself, but to have a disease on a spectrum based on markers that are only found by a dodgy test does not give me the confidence to call this a disease or an infection at all. The word spectrum is important. Syphilis is not a spectrum. You have it, or you do not have it. No in-between. No partial syphilis. No, just a little bit of syphilis. No, you still have the syphilis, but your markers are low. None of this would make sense for syphilis, because syphilis is an infection. What kind of infection operates on a spectrum? Excellent question. A fake infection is my speculative answer. The huge majority of adults in the Western world will have PCR blood markers for herpes. They call this HSV. In my opinion, all the H's are the same, in that they are not infections. If the word infection is used to describe syphilis, then it cannot be used to describe any of the H retroviruses. The HIV, HSV, HPV, so-called infections do not match the appearance of other viral infections. I want to include hepatitis here as well because the symptoms of this supposed infection are remarkably indistinct. They are symptoms that you could have with any general sickness. Many of us have probably had these symptoms when we had to stay home from school as kids, probably from the common flu. Symptoms of hepatitis include fever, fatigue, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, dark urine, dehydration light-colored stools, joint pain, and jaundice. Jaundice is the most serious thing on the list. And jaundice is a nutrient problem, caused by a digestive problem, or vitamin deficiencies, probably caused by the sickness itself. They say these symptoms can appear 2-6 to months after infection. They also want us to get vaccinated against this mysterious thing, but they tell us that the risk factors for hepatitis are pretty much the same as HIV, Male-on-male sex, intravenous drug use, people who already have HIV, people who have had sex with someone else with hepatitis, people requiring immunosuppressive therapy, people with severe kidney disease, etc. So if you already have a serious problem, kidney disease or something requiring immunosuppressive therapy, then you might show these generalized signs of bad health. This only makes me think, duh... If you're unhealthy, you might show other signs of being unhealthy. How is this a specific disease? The majority of adults in the Western world supposedly have markers for herpes in their blood. But the majority of adults in the Western world do not show symptoms of herpes. HSV is the name below an arbitrary threshold, and herpes is what it's called when there's symptoms. Symptoms tend to occur when there are more markers in the blood. So herpes is to HSV what AIDS is to HIV. Even the mainstream medical world seems to believe that you have to be unhealthy for any symptoms of HSV to appear. Having blood markers present is not enough to be called herpes. You can supposedly have the disease without having symptoms. So are the symptoms the result of an infection or the result of an unhealthy body? It seems quite clear that the symptoms of HSV, HPV, HIV, and hepatitis A, B, or C are a result of an unhealthy body. Terrain theory. Don't believe me? First, go get a test for herpes. It's a safe bet that you will have antibodies. If not, you will be able to find someone you know easily. If we tested the whole population, a majority will have antibodies, and the mainstream medical world agrees with this. If you do not have cold sores or have never gotten one, all you have to do is the opposite of everything we've mentioned to promote good health. If it's healthy to rest, relax, avoid stress, avoid bad foods, and take nutrients, then it's just as easy to do the opposite to promote the opposite of health. Be stressed. Don't sleep. Eat only junk food. Take drugs. Don't supplement. Not even vitamin C. You will develop cold sores or something similar very quickly. You will get sick, likely. You will likely develop growths all over the body in some form. Some of them could look like pimples, others like warts. You might even develop genital warts, whether you've ever had sexual contact or not. Cysts are likely. Rashes and fungal infections are likely. Respiratory infections are likely. Aches and pains and various discomforts will appear in short time. I don't believe that you need to have sexual contact to develop symptoms of herpes or the other H's. I believe all you need to do to show any of these symptoms is to be unhealthy. The more unhealthy, the more likely all the so-called H-viral symptoms will appear. And if you have symptoms, the whole list of things to do to promote health applies. The protocol from the allopaths is drugs that attack the immune system. We do not believe this is a good idea. There are many ways to support the immune system. I didn't mention extra zinc when talking about cancer, so I'll throw that in. It's another one of the essential nutrients that's also an antioxidant and also supports and promotes a healthy immune system. It's also one of the few nutrients your doctor might actually say is a good idea to boost. If I had a diagnosis of an immune problem of any kind, including any virus, I would boost all of the antioxidant nutrients. Many people survive a long time with HIV. I have an uncle who has had it as long as I've been alive. He's not in amazing shape, but he's alive. He looks like any other civilian on the street, in my opinion. Magic Johnson, once a poster boy of AIDS, is still alive. Magic Johnson for years has publicly endorsed various products that are said to support the immune system. Digging a bit deeper, there are more sinister problems. The idea that many of the phony diseases came originally from animals seems usually to be media nonsense. I'd recommend not listening to anything about health on TV. Even if you see me on TV, the edit is probably bogus. That wouldn't be a problem, except that humans tend to get the blame for the animal infection. In the case of AIDS, one man was publicly thought of as patient zero. This vilification apparently harmed his life in a great way. I believe it. We want to place blame on this thing, this noun. And if it is not a noun, a thing that can infect us, then this scam has hurt many people unnecessarily. Certain groups were identified as being more susceptible to AIDS. Let's have a closer look. Gay men were singled out for two reasons. The first is anal sex. Rectal tissues are more easily damaged than vaginal tissues. The rectum does not secrete its own lubrication, but the vagina does. Anal sex is more likely to tear skin than vaginal sex. Open wounds are susceptible to infections. Skin protects from infections. Both parties are liable to tear skin if inadequately lubricated, and this is a natural risk with anal sex. Obviously, the rectal cavity, if pierced, is at a high risk of infection. That's one reason. They singled out gay men because gay men are more likely to practice anal sex. I think it's useful to teach safe practices for straight people too, by the way. But gay men were at risk, so they were a lot of the focus. The second reason they were singled out was because of party culture overlapping with gay male populations. They tended to party and do drugs especially amphetamine drugs that are known to be bad for the immune system. So they were also at high risk because of this. Drug users in general were also high risk, and gay men were known to overlap with that group quite a bit. There's a few problems here. First of all, AIDS is a relatively new disease. Anal sex is not. It is as old as writing as far as we know. Anal sex is inscribed on ancient tablets and depicted in ancient statues and carvings. So there has always been a direct risk of infection present. The risk is not new. Disinfection is also not new. There are a long list of plants and other antimicrobial things like shell flour, essential oils, and fire that the ancients knew about and most likely utilized to help deal with infections. They say the Incas were doing brain surgery and I have to believe they knew about infections. I have worked in one remote location with no direct access to emergency medical care. It is a small village on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica. The entire Pacific Nicoya Peninsula is known as a blue zone, a place where people tend to live a long time. But that is another book. Most of the village does not speak English at all. At my last count, two of the younger villagers were sent out to college. One of them learned massage therapy, a useful trade for the healthy tourist industry in the country paid for with the father's football money. The father now gets free massages, and he already lives in one of the world's longest-lived locations, and I think he's a pretty smart guy. The jungle is known as a rough place for infections, and it's true. Fungus, bugs, birds, and all kinds of animals will steal your garden if you're not careful. Fungal infections in the body are likely if dampness is not kept in check. And spooky viruses are said to be ever-present. You might think that a people who have survived in an infection-prone environment for many generations would have many treatments for viruses. They don't. If you get hurt in the jungle, the remedy is usually seawater. One of our students once stepped on a stingray. It punctured her foot. It was painful, but not threatening. She chose to stay in town rather than venture the dirt roads many hours to a dodgy hospital. Locals assured us that the hospital didn't have much for her anyway. She wasn't losing a lot of blood, and it was all wrapped up, but of course there is a risk of infection, which was our primary concern at that point. The local remedy? Seawater. The foot stays in the seawater, it heals faster, it feels better, and it is less likely to get infected. Change the water frequently. Once I had to crawl under a wooden deck to turn on a water main. I got many bullet ant stings. The local remedy was salt water. Until 2015, I had only heard of one case of dengue fever in the area. Dengue is said to be a virus transmitted by a mosquito. There are always a lot of mosquitoes in these hot, damp places, which is part of the reason these places are known for many viruses. I do believe mosquitoes can make us sick. That one case I knew about was a student from a Western country in a village down the road. She was not healthy generally, from what I was told. Her immune system was highly susceptible to infection, in my opinion. But in 2015, something weird happened. A bunch of people got dengue. They say in the tropics that dengue only gets you once, like chicken pox. Many people in the village had already experienced it at some point in their lives. Dengue is miserable, like flu in paralysis. Wretchedly tired but unable to sleep. Sweating hot, freezing cold... The mandatory fan blowing on you to keep the mosquitoes away feels like little needles. This can last a few days, or a week, or more. The worst part of the experience was hydrophobia. Very few other illnesses include hydrophobia, an intense repulsion to water. Rabies also has hydrophobia included in its symptoms. So dengue was like rabies with the flu, in paralysis. I'm just painting a picture here for you, because we're talking about infections still. AIDS is still said to be an infection, but this is the kind of story I'm looking for when it comes to an infection. So in 2015, nearly everyone in the village got what appeared to be dengue. They all called it dengue because it felt like dengue to them. The village was getting quiet because everyone was at home in bed. You can't even pretend to go about your business with dengue. We were getting pretty worried that we were going to get it too. Then there was a power outage that lasted longer than a normal, rolling blackout. Long enough for the mosquitoes to really get us, without the fans on. Glass windows are a luxury in the jungle, and so most people do not have them. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was New Year's Eve, and we were invited to a celebration at the Don's house. A Don is like an unofficial mayor. I was honored, frankly. But as we were getting ready, it hit me like a brick. I couldn't even really speak to my friends. I just crawled into bed and curled up and stayed there for days. My friends and I developed symptoms a few days apart so we could help each other. We forced each other to eat, at least a little bit of egg or fish, and drink water and supplements. Saliva wasn't being produced, and chewing was very difficult. Like some chemical drugs, eating carbs or plant material is almost impossible. You can keep chewing and it doesn't seem to go anywhere. There is a real risk of choking. We also forced each other to shower and go in the ocean. Actually, we were already used to having our daily meetings in the ocean. We can get a short bit of vitamin D from the sun, a bit of a swim, which is a nice luxury, and we can talk to each other without any distractions or devices. If I'm in charge of the time, I like to get extra value for the money. With dengue, the beach and the water and the sun were all horrible, painful even. If you can believe it, hydrophobia makes water disgusting, and we need water. Showering was miserable. Of course we don't have hot water, either. One of my friends begged us to get him a helicopter airlift back to America or something. Anything. Anywhere. Anyone who could help. Many people begged God for it to stop or for a merciful death. I'm being dramatic because infections are dramatic, but honestly it was really horrible, and I prayed to God for it to stop, too. The local remedy, you can probably guess. Rest, try to nourish, salty water, and that's pretty much it. There is no shaman voodoo herb or root that will ease the suffering noticeably. There were obvious differences in how people dealt with the problem. Everyone did a lot of resting as the primary treatment, but young people clearly got over it faster. None of us young people lasted longer than a week. Some old people lasted two. Of the three of us, one was in great shape. He built himself a jungle gym, and he forced himself to train weights and cardio during the dengue. I couldn't believe it even as I watched him. He looked like a zombie. It looked like torture, but he did it. And he forced the beach trip, which was really a five-minute walk, but seemed to take all day on dengue. He did it every day, while myself and our other friend each took a couple of days off. Our fit friend got better faster than either of us. Much faster. His illness seemed to really only last four days. That was the village record. Everyone called it Dengue until the TV said that the rest of the world was saying there is something called Zika virus going around. So everyone switched to calling it Zika. It made sense to give it a different name anyway. It only felt like Dengue, but we all understood Dengue as a -a once-in-a-lifetime deal. So it was probably something else. I don't know exactly what a virus is, and I don't think anybody really does. But I do believe that we all caught something from a mosquito. Bugs can deliver pathogens into our bodies that attack us directly. I will tell another story in the next chapter, but suffice to say, I am satisfied with labeling this phenomena a viral infection. It wasn't terrain that caused this, because we all got it, and the terrain didn't change. This is a healthier place than any other I have seen, and we all caught the infection. The viral infections I'm familiar with mostly do not call for medicine because few compounds have any reliable effect on the duration or outcome of viral infections. The duration and severity of the symptoms seem to depend on only two factors, the presence of the infection and the state of the body dealing with it. A less healthy body will be prone to more infections and will have a harder, longer time dealing with them. Antiviral drugs suppress the immune system. That's what they say they do. I believe this further increases future potential of infections. An older body, or a body with an already existing digestive or immune issue or nutrient deficiency, will deal with it less easily than a healthier person. I am fine with calling a bug infection of any kind a disease, even if the allopathic world doesn't have much to treat it, and neither do we. At least they could provide a safe and clean environment for you to wait out the infection. They could provide you with salt and an IV one of the most useful things they do, in my opinion. They could get you water and change your sheets and help you out. Grandma's method. We could do that too, but we're generally not equipped. Insurance doesn't pay us, and neither do governments, so it's okay to go to a hospital if you have dengue, as long as you know that your chances are still about the same as they would be at home. Does any of this sound like AIDS? we have a pretty good understanding about bacterial fungal and even viral infections when they are correlated to an infectious experience like Zika or chickenpox. The way we diagnose AIDS is not by symptoms like every other thing we have talked about until this chapter. The way we identify AIDS is to take a PCR test. It looks for markers and depending on how many you have relative to the spectrum and the arbitrary distinction between HIV and AIDS You are said to have one or the other. It doesn't matter what symptoms you have before you take the test. The people who were identified for HIV tests were those at high risk of infection and ill health generally. Those infectious risk categories included physical risk in the form of anal sex and chronic risk in the form of drug users and minorities. People who tend to be less healthy were identified as at risk for this infection and were given a test. The groups of people they identified are at a higher risk of infection and chronic illness. These groups have lower life expectancy than others. People who use drugs do compromise their immune system. All drugs compromise the immune system. Fried food compromises the immune system. Cheap processed food compromises the immune system. Stress compromises the immune system. All of this makes people more likely to get sick in many ways specifically pathogenic illnesses, cold, flu, sinus infections, yeast infections, ear infections, bladder infections, regular sicknesses. This is the experience for unhealthy people, along with general aches and pains and headaches and so on. If you look for particularly unhealthy groups, they're pretty easy to find. So we single those people out and say they are most likely to have these markers. And they're also likely to have other markers, such as HSV. They're also likely to get regular sicknesses regularly, and have many antibodies in the blood. So we tell these people they have a disease. The treatment for the disease is antiviral or immune-suppressing drugs. If they survive for any length, they are called an HIV or an AIDS patient. If they show improvement over arbitrary time, they can eventually be called in remission. This is as far as the renaming can go. One is always a patient, whether they are in remission or not. Many of the people who were told they had AIDS or HIV or HSV for that matter otherwise had no distinct symptoms. They had general symptoms. They had common health problems. My theory would be that the antiviral or immune-suppressing drugs didn't help any of these people get any healthier. Some of them publicly made lifestyle and nutritional changes and lived healthfully to a normal longevity. Many of them are still alive, and I imagine they will continue to do well. Some people didn't do the pharmaceutical drugs. Lots of people did. Many famous people died while on allopathic treatment programs for HIV or AIDS. It is usually said that these people died of AIDS. But this is definitely not clear. Dying of a heart attack is clear. But general immune failure is ambiguous as to the actual cause. Someone who dies of pneumonia should have pneumonia listed as their cause of death, not the presumed contributors to that immune failure. No death certificate should list AIDS as the cause of death, as that contributor to the final immune failure is speculative. Similarly, people who die of lung cancer should be said to have died from lung cancer, not smoking or obesity or any other presumed risk factor to the actual cause of death. Even on the deathbed, The symptoms of AIDS are not unique to AIDS. The experience I described for dengue is quite unique. Syphilis is quite unique, with an easily identifiable pathogen. But AIDS patients tend to die of pneumonia. Pneumonia is essentially just final immune system failure, kaput. It can happen to presidents if they stay out in the rain and catch a fever. I don't think the rain delivers a virus. I think the rain puts that last stress on an under-equipped system and it fails. The micro world is just waiting to devour us as soon as we stop breathing. A coconut drops from the tree and very soon after it is swarming with bugs and fungus and everything is moving in. I think it is the same in our bodies. If we let our internal environment tilt a bit, then bad bacteria, fungus, virus, and pathogens of all kinds are given the edge over us. There is a word I have left out of the book so far, alkalinity. This is because there is so much hype behind the word that I like to distance myself from it. But let's cover it quickly. Many people report success on helping people achieve a healthy immune system with natural methods. One such category is people with serious immune diagnoses, like AIDS. So, some people have claimed to get good results with AIDS patients via lifestyle changes. If you believe any of the explanations in this book for the pathogenesis of disease, then this makes easy sense. Some practitioners and patients attribute this success to the state of alkalinity. I have some technical disagreements, but as far as described here, I agree with the concept. They say sugar feeds cancer and sugar promotes acidity, the opposite of alkalinity. As far as I know, the most important factor for whether or not someone is alkaline is whether they have enough calcium. Calcium has many cofactors, and each is important, but none is more important for alkalinity. We have one cheap measure of alkalinity, and it is very reliable. Putting copper on the skin in the form of a bracelet or a wire will turn the skin underneath green, blue, or black if the person is what we are calling too acidic. If this happens, we say the person is not alkaline. There is a very small window of tolerance in blood pH. Too far in either direction is life-threatening very quickly. I find the copper test very accurate. If I increase the stress on my day without increasing a spread of nutrients and water, then my skin will change color slightly. Most people will turn green quickly, but I will bet that any healthy person will show up green in a few hours if they ate a couple of full-sized bags of potato chips or a few candy bars. Calcium, water, and the water-soluble nutrients are the most important factors in reversing this quickly. Someone who is overweight might not lose the color under the copper until they have reached their proper healthy weight. This could take more than a year, but will happen if they continue to avoid the bad foods and take the adequate dose of the essential nutrients, particularly calcium and the others in the bone and joint group. It is my opinion that the calcium product we promote is the best one in the world. It got me out of lifelong pain, and it keeps my skin clear while wearing copper. If I slack on it a few days, I will turn a bit green with my normal diet. Bone meal, wood ash, crop irrigation, and composting were the primary methods that primitive people used, without knowing the chemistry, to get more of these key minerals in their diet. And that lifestyle is simply unrealistic for those of us in the modern world. Those water-soluble nutrients include all of the B vitamins and vitamin C, Plants can make these things, and so we can get them in food and also in supplement form. The water-soluble nutrients include minerals called electrolytes. Sodium, potassium, chloride, calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus are all water-soluble. Sodium chloride, salt, is water-soluble, and arguably the most important nutrient. Ancient soldiers are said to have been paid in salt at various times in history. This is where we get the word salary. This is because you can pillage food all day, but you require salt to digest it. They couldn't cross deserts or mountains without it. Their animals couldn't either. Salt has also been called the most alkalizing substance. Due to technicality, I have to agree. We need enough calcium to be alkaline, but we need salt to absorb calcium properly. We need salt for the stomach to work properly, and that function is important for all the rest of it. But salt on its own will not make you alkaline. Using enough salt is required for having a healthy, strong stomach acid, which is required for proper absorption of nutrients and digestion of food. If enough of all of the essential nutrients are present, the person is alkaline and the body is not in a state of disease. Any person with any disease will likely experience the skin discoloration from copper. I would safely bet on it. Since there is no identifiable link between a pathogen and the state of disease we call AIDS, And since there is no coherent state of disease for either AIDS or HIV, I can only assume this thing, sometimes referred to as an autoimmune disease and sometimes referred to as an infection, is neither. I believe the symptoms associated with HIV are symptoms of an unhealthy body. And the people claiming to help people achieve health by encouraging alkalinity, I believe them. The hype about HIV-AIDS has decreased in recent years as new diseases come into fashion. But it is still big business, and it is still talked about today, much the same way it was 30 years ago. Mainstream medicine still has no better odds with people now than they did when they first discovered it. In my business, since I can't treat diseases, I don't. I assume the person has an unhealthy immune system, and I help them figure out how to support a healthy immune system. The other H worth talking about before we move on is HPV. HPV is an even weirder case than AIDS and totally deserving a good questioning. This is another H-virus that is supposedly caught by skin-to-skin contact or sex. Like HIV, HPV has no specific unique symptoms or experiences. People with HPV markers may develop warts or genital warts and other common symptoms of a depressed immune system. If a woman with these symptoms is pregnant, she can give birth to a child with these symptoms also. The CDC says 90% of HPV infections, quote, go away on their own within two years, end quote. Very interesting. But you should still get a vaccine for it, they say, of course. Never mind that the symptoms aren't that serious and will probably go away on their own without any treatment. The weirdest thing about HPV, in my opinion, is the vaccine for it. The reasoning behind most of the marketing for this is that people with HPV markers are at a higher risk for certain cancers. But there is no vaccine that will prevent cancer, and there is no vaccine that prevents infection from a fake disease. The symptoms of these H-viruses are those of a generally unhealthy person, and a generally unhealthy person may indeed develop a form of cancer, because cancer is caused by the factors that make someone unhealthy. If the H-viruses were truly transmittable infections, a vaccine might make theoretical sense. Except that vaccines do not prevent infection. A vaccine might make some sense if it was sure to eliminate the risk of infection, but it does not. To me, it has not been properly demonstrated that any of the H's are infections. I think the blood can develop many antibodies as it is exposed to many things throughout life. The longer we live, the more antibodies we may have. If we eat the wrong foods, or are deprived of enough of the essential nutrients, we will face many challenges in life. Some of those problems will be physical, mechanical problems. Others will be infectious. Some of those infections will be easily identifiable and treatable. Some will be pernicious, vague, and they can spell the end for the patient. In any case, we know that none of the H's are a death sentence, and all of them have plenty of cases walking around just fine with no symptoms. I don't feel comfortable calling any of the H's a disease, or an infection, and I think this leads us perfectly into our final disease chapter, covering the latest fashionable disease. Chapter 10. The New Disease A few of the social media accounts I run could be considered conspiracy-oriented. I'm used to being on the outside opinion, but I'm not used to much censorship about it. The only things that I was really directly censored about in the past were things that I considered fake news. Things shown on the news that I thought were fake, staged, directed, like a movie or a TV commercial. For whichever reasons, talking about fake news is discouraged on many social media platforms. Since my accounts aren't about news, or fake news, this means I can usually say mostly whatever I want. All of the stuff in this book so far, I am able to say on the internet or in public without expecting censorship. I have said everything here publicly before and posted it online. In 2020, a new virus media event happened and suddenly I saw government links attached to my posts when my posts contained any word associated with the new virus. This now also happens with the word vaccine. I don't normally like to talk much about vaccines. I already know they are a target for censorship, and I really don't want my accounts punished in any way. We don't sell or promote anything having to do with vaccines, so it doesn't matter to the core of our message. There are books on the subject that I agree with, and I usually just recommend them and move on. My point here is that these keywords are in fact targeted for censorship. Since I am submitting this book to Amazon, I want to avoid these keywords. So far, this book is written in legal terminology that should not get me in trouble. But there are many new laws in place about this new virus that are much more worrisome than any disease we have so far discussed. I will refer to this 2020 event as the beer virus. Footnote 5. Because of the popular beer, Corona. Return to text. At this point, I want to say that I am not blaming any particular medical professionals for anything here. Bluntly, they are not educated in nutrition, and so I don't expect them to have a good understanding of most diseases we have covered. They also don't have to be bad people. I've worked in research, and I know that all of us can have great intentions, yet the system can still be bad, and the outcomes can still be bad. There might be more reprehensible deliberate obfuscations by the media, but even then I don't have the energy to assign personal blame. The media shouldn't be responsible for health information anyway. And neither should governments, in my opinion. I believe there is a lot of deliberate misinformation, combined with a lot of good intentions gone wrong, combined with hysteria, combined with clumsy and controlled politicians who shouldn't be expected to know what to do about a pandemic. None of this would matter that much if it weren't for the consequences of closing down the world for nearly a year at the time of this writing. Update. As of March 2022, the world has clearly changed dramatically in response to this pandemic. My home country of Canada has been nearly ruined economically, and I've shed tears driving through cities that used to thrive but are now boarded up. Like all the new laws that were put in place after the events of September 11, 2001, I do not expect any of the new government control systems put in place in response to the pandemic to ever be reversed. I have commented in more detail on the pandemic and the resulting medical tyranny in my book, Everything the Government Does is Bad for Us. I hope this sounds out of date to future readers and that everything did open back up and go back to normal, but I have a strong feeling that 2020 will be looked back upon as the year it all changed. By the rest of this book, it should be expected by my own logic that doctors should be responsible for handling this so-called pandemic. If it is an infection, which they say it is, and it has clear specific symptoms and experience, which they say it does, then it should be handled by professionals equipped to deal with infectious disease. But what if there is no disease? I've gone to great lengths in this book to avoid using numbers, charts, studies, and unnecessarily technical language. Though the beer disease is arguably the most important event of our time, I still think we can make the argument for it being a fake without even using the exact numbers. Though my training and experience is in nutrition, not medicine or infections, I do have some basic knowledge, and I know that if you look up coronavirus in a medical textbook, it will tell you that this type of virus is what we lay people call the flu. Though there has been effort from the medical community to handle the flu pharmacologically, mostly through the use of annual flu shots, there has been little progress made in eradicating the flu. On a normal year, estimates tend to be in the range of 200,000 to 600,000 people killed worldwide from the flu. These are estimates because exact cause of death in many cases, whether it is a presumed heart failure or some type of infection, are not often ascertained. Autopsies are rarely performed, and different doctors and pathologists often disagree on exact cause of death. It is quite easy to declare with certainty that someone was killed by a bullet to the head, but it is much more difficult with many of the common types of death, including the flu. So we will never have exact numbers on exactly how many people are killed by any virus, especially if they are already elderly or frail or have some other disease when they die of, say, a respiratory infection. What we do know for sure is that this type of virus is not new and neither are big numbers of people who die each year in association with different types of flu. The 2018-2019 to season was a particularly bad year for flu cases worldwide, and yet there was no media declared pandemic. Here I am not downplaying the seriousness of the flu or other common infections, especially pneumonia. These are serious threats that we need to be on top of. The best way to prevent any type of infection seems to be to be healthy. That statement sounds so simple that many people dismiss it outright, but all of the media outlets I have seen, as well as various government agencies in every country I've seen, have told us that the people most likely to die from this particular virus have at least two other existing health problems, especially diabetes, obesity, and some existing respiratory problem. Further, although the mainstream world didn't talk much about it, Many medical doctors and alternative practitioners heavily emphasized a few key nutrients and even herbs like pine needles in helping the body overcome such an illness. The most common nutrients that I saw touted were vitamin D and zinc, both of which are already essential nutrients, both of which are involved in numerous systems in the body, which are no secret in nutritional science, and both of which can be legally claimed to quote, help support and promote a healthy immune system, end quote. We are taught to respond to problems once they occur, and the primary way we do that in the modern world is to go to a doctor and consume some pharmaceutical compound. But pharmaceuticals in general have very low value when it comes to dealing with viruses. Bacteria are visible because they have cells, and we can directly see whether a chemical agent, natural or pharmaceutical, kills the bacteria. This is not the case with viruses, and at best we have statistical associations to try to piece together the truth. To us, being healthy means avoiding the bad foods, consuming all of the essential nutrients, and not much more. I do believe that exercise also helps a lot in staving off infections. I know some practitioners who recommend immediate vigorous exercise the moment you feel a sniffle or a tickle in the throat. We all know the feeling when we are coming down with something, and many people with a lot of experience believe that we can stop the sickness by refusing to act sick. I don't have a way to quantify that belief scientifically, but it is definitely worth a try. I have already mentioned how our fit friend beat Zika faster than anyone else in our sample group by doing exactly the same food and supplement regimen that we did, but adding vigorous exercise. I completely believe that his general fitness, combined with his food and nutrient habits, is what put him in a better position than any of us to beat the infection. The media and governments across the world acted in 2020 like the flu didn't exist. Both the media and governments, to my knowledge, completely failed to acknowledge that the virus in question has always been listed as a flu virus. To my knowledge, the flu basically disappeared statistically in the years 2020 and 2021, because all such cases were recorded as cases of the beer virus. In my opinion, the flu did not disappear overnight. It was simply renamed. This statistical trickery is definitely not the only reason I consider this a fake disease. As for this new pandemic with a not at all new virus, I would like to give you my opinion from the beginning. In late 2019, I was on the road. In Arizona, staying with a friend, the day before I was about to leave, I did not feel good. I was coming down with something, for sure. I had been on the road for several months, and this was not the first sign that my body had had enough. I had been tired and hungry recently. My skin was showing blemishes, and my lips were swollen. And now, for the first time in years, I was getting sick. This was embarrassing because I am in the health business. I hadn't been sick like this since I started the program that I promote, and I knew I was to blame. Planes and cars are both heavy EMF and can be generally exhausting. Staying with many different people all the time and shuffling from place to place is stressful. Eating can be a problem on the road because I avoid common ingredients like gluten and oil. And so I also tend to eat very little while traveling. I also tend to drink more than my normal amount of coffee, which dehydrates, causing me to need more water-soluble nutrients like salt and vitamin C. Normally I am not very hungry. But after a while on the road, I can develop a serious craving. In America recently, a few gluten-free cookie brands have also begun making no-oil options. They're still not good. Sugar and processed carbs generally is still not good. But I was so hungry. I ate a bunch of them over probably a week, and at the end of the week, I got sick. I'm confessing this for a few reasons. First, it shows that an otherwise healthy person can tilt that balance pretty easily. Second, it puts me in doubt that this viral experience I had was caught. I don't think I got it from the cookies. I think I am more likely to get sick if I treat my body poorly. This definitely was not a food-borne illness. Anyone who has gotten a food poisoning knows that it is a very unique experience. There were none of the digestive symptoms in my sickness here. My primary symptom was a miserable restlessness and a lack of energy. Closer to dengue than to a bacterial infection. The third reason to confess this is because this was Christmas Eve and the latest disease being promoted was the beer virus. I had been using international airports and shaking hands and touching gas pumps and I was at a high risk of picking up any bug with this lifestyle. I spent Christmas Day in a hotel in miserable restlessness. I spent as long as I could under the hot water in the shower. I drank lots of salty water and regular water. I doubled my supplements. I waited it out. I didn't eat anything because there is nothing good available at an airport hotel, especially on Christmas Day. The next day, I was well enough to travel to a friend's house and sit with her in miserable restlessness. A few more groggy days, on New Year's Eve, I was just about normal and on the way back home. Since we are in the health business, and our primary form of sales takes place in the form of answering questions from the public, we can expect questions about new diseases as they hit the news. Like vaccines, infectious diseases are not a topic I try to cover. We are not claiming to be emergency caregivers. We promote nutritional strategies for gradual and long-term health improvements, mostly. We have to talk a lot about food and salt and other things because it matters directly to our sales proposition. We are proposing that people will probably feel better and improve symptoms if they take our products, and we must insist that food matters in this equation. The beer disease doesn't have anything to do with our business, and it is being targeted for censorship, so naturally I want to avoid the subject. But it kept coming up. People wanted to know what to do. We had the same answer to offer that we always do, support and promote the body's natural ability to maintain and repair itself. It was never very exciting, but people everywhere were excited about the beer virus. I also think this answer was in line with what we can legally say. The news says there is a new flu out there, which is an immune problem. There are several things that are widely recognized as supporting and promoting a healthy immune system. Several of these indisputable compounds are also essential nutrients. Nutrients are deemed essential if we get a disease without them. But all essential nutrients will have multiple roles in the body, including the immune system. Since the beginning of the new virus, there was a flurry of activity around long-known nutrients like zinc, vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin D, and so on. These are essential nutrients and have always been a part of our pitch, so we didn't need to change this. Our recommendation remained the same. Support the body by avoiding the bad stuff and taking all the essential nutrients in intelligent amounts. If attempting to further support the immune system, increase the specific nutrients that are known to do this. They are called antioxidant nutrients. Increasing all the water-soluble nutrients is not a bad idea either. A lot of people expected us to jump on this pandemic as a way to market these specific nutrients more heavily, but we have never recommended just taking one or a few nutrients. We have always recommended taking all of them and boosting some as needed. I didn't change my habits in response to the growing concern. I didn't buy hand sanitizer. I only use hand sanitizer if we are out in the forest without running water. Otherwise, I wash my hands with soap and water and that's all. Early in 2020, we were in Michigan with my mentor, Dr. Joel Wallach. He's a veterinarian, a comparative pathologist, and a naturopathic human physician. I figure he knows more about these beer viruses than I do. Every time I see him, I try to have a few questions. As the years have gone on, I've had less questions. I think this is because I believe myself to understand most of the topics that come up. This is good. But in the nutrition business, we are not supposed to be experts on viruses. Surgeries and infections can be very complicated. It's something people go to school for. It's professional territory requiring licenses and qualifications that I don't have. Dr. Wallach has those credentials, so I asked him. He gave me the same answer that he gave the audience that evening. He said that beer viruses are common. They are a type of flu. The flu kills many people each year. Some years they have different names, but it's more or less the same thing. At this time, the talk on the TV was mostly still about China and Europe. The TV and others said that this beer is different from the beers of history. This one is especially potent, they say. In the early months, I saw a lot of footage of people in China falling over in the street from this virus. I am not familiar with any virus that strikes a person so violently. There were also many people laying down, apparently dead, in the street. It looked apocalyptic. And it looked very strange. I've seen at least one virus hit an entire small population hard, as described in the AIDS chapter. Everyone went to bed. They did not go out on the streets to lay down on a staircase. What we were seeing in China was very strange. This type of behavior could have been caused by two things, in my opinion. The first is some sort of radiation stun, crowd control. There are frequency-based stun technologies... I assume these could be made strong enough to kill a person. But from the footage I have seen, it is not clear if any of the people laying down were dead. Many of them break their own fall as they are falling, which looks like acting. And many move while on the ground. There are lots of videos showing this. I know these are very strong claims, and so I made a full-length video about it. The video was taken down from YouTube and blocked from Bitchute. I managed to get one version of it onto my Instagram account, at Transcend Towers but then I decided to make an extended version and put it on its own website. It is probably worth writing a book on the subject, but it was well-suited to a video. The video can be viewed on www.wagthedogtheory.com. I recommend downloading it if it is still up when you check. I could have included hours of people falling down, but there is much more relevant content to make the case in the video. On the video, I attempted to establish that the media has a history of participating in, or falling for, fake news stories. In the 1997 movie, Wag the Dog, the main characters in the film stage a short clip about a war with Albania, to avoid a sex scandal with the President. It is an entertaining and instructive watch. I believe this concept has given us many incidents to talk about, including the 2020 event. My strongest reason for saying this, apart from the many strange things in Western media, is the Chinese falling down dead phenomena. It appears as if these people were either being stunned or that some or all of them were acting. This behavior was not seen anywhere else in the world. If they had a virus that was dropping people like that, why did it not look like that anywhere else? Was it a different virus? Was it a virus at all? My wife suggested that I remove these paragraphs from the book. She said the rest of the book doesn't sound like a conspiracy, but this does. She has seen our platforms punished for talking about the beer virus in general, and she knows that I have very little to gain by covering this topic, as it is indeed a conspiracy theory. She is right. The point of this book has nothing to do with this pandemic, and the pandemic has nothing to do with our business. We help people understand and overcome common chronic problems. We don't do pandemics. It's not in our job description or training. But the pandemic has changed our world, affected my own life and the lives of people that I love, and I care quite a lot about that. I am compelled to offer some kind of theory to explain the people falling down in China. There has been very little commentary offered about it from either the mainstream or the alternative world. It seems most people forgot about this happening, or they never saw the footage. It was only shown briefly before the script moved on. I saved hours of this footage, and I have watched it deeply, and it still does not make sense. There has not been any other virus promoted using this type of footage that I am aware of. I have lived through many viral scares so far, including SARS, bird flu, Ebola, Zika, mad cow disease, etc. I cannot recall ever seeing footage of anyone falling down from any virus anywhere in the world. Hollywood movies really don't even look like that. When hit with a virus, people tend to slow down dramatically, but they don't just drop dead on the streets. That's what weapons do. Since there is nothing to compare the footage to, I have to come up with something. And since no one that I'm aware of has really talked deeply about this footage, I don't have any other theories to reference. Lots of people blamed this phenomenon on 5G cell phone towers being turned on. I thought that I was being reasonable to assume that this was not the case. Especially as, again... The falling down phenomenon hasn't to date happened anywhere else, yet 5G is supposedly on all over the world. In the footage, there are only select people falling over, it is not whole crowds, it does not look to me like a tranquilizer, and there is no evidence of that as far as I can tell. It also does not look like poisoning, there are no bodily fluids, blood, pus, urine, foaming at the mouth, nothing, or other signs of poisoning. There is also no clear evidence that any of the people falling over or laying down are dead. There is clear evidence in most of the videos that most of the people on the ground are moving by themselves, so they are alive. There is also footage of people in body bags moving and opening their eyes. These, to me, are clear proof of staging a media event, not the recorded documentation of actual people dying. Again, these claims required video evidence to prove which is why I made the video. In most of the footage, none of these people are coughing or communicating at all. They could be stunned, or they could be acting, and I honestly have no other theories. Maybe they were drugged, but it just doesn't look like that. This is important evidence that was used to implement the most serious disease protocol we have ever seen on Earth by anyone alive. Then this evidence disappeared from all conversation except the hardcore conspiracy theorists who still say 5G must be responsible. I would be fine calling the beer virus the thing responsible for the people falling down, but I would have questions about the rest of the world. China seems to be doing fine at the moment, without people falling down in the streets. People didn't fall down anywhere else, no matter their ethnicity or country of origin. Videos are better than numbers in some cases. But the numbers for the beer disease have been questionable from the start. Deaths by chronic disease like heart attack and cancer nearly disappeared during the pandemic, as did the regular flu that tends to kill around 250,000 to 500,000 people a year, according to the World Health Organization. The numbers are further complicated by the difference between dying with and dying from a disease, and this distinction has been a problem through the whole pandemic. Again, the mainstream has told us that the people who are dying, by and large, have more than two existing health problems. In other words, the people most likely to die are already unhealthy. An unhealthy person who dies with an infectious agent present probably did die from that infection, and I argued in the previous chapter that the ultimate cause of death should be what appears on the death certificate, not any presumed risk factors that may have contributed to their overall susceptibility. Nonetheless, there are many important questions and distinctions that have really been left out of the conversation. To understand disease and susceptibility to disease, we do need to clarify these very important concepts, such as the fact that if you are unhealthy, you are more likely to die from an infection. This is important because we are told that if we look at the entire population, we citizens as a whole have less than a 1% chance of dying from this particular infection which is about the same chance of dying if you contracted the flu on any year of your life. All of us were affected by the lockdowns, mandates, and economic and emotional hardships caused by the response to this virus, and yet there is a well-known elevated risk only for unhealthy and elderly people. Children have almost no chance of dying from this virus, and yet they were forced to cover their faces and distance themselves from other humans during their most critical years for social and psychological development. I feel a deep sorrow for any children who had to experience these unwarranted protective measures. Here I am not even making the case that the virus itself is fake. I am making the case that it was never reasonable to respond to the flu in this way. It would have been reasonable to focus attention on the groups, unhealthy and elderly, who were most at risk, but I would still not support removing rights from anyone or closing businesses in response to the threat level even for those most at risk. The risk was not high enough even for the at-risk people, and I believe in freedom strongly enough that I believe at-risk adults should remain free to make their own choices regarding voluntary segregation or covering their faces and so on. Several people have speculated that this virus was manufactured in a lab in China. Even if this were the case, the apparent risk of this new virus was no greater than the common flu viruses. Even with possible inflated numbers people who actually died from something else but were recorded as a death from the beer virus. There was no excess mortality in the years 2020 or 2021. The world population increased during this time, as it has every year for well over a century. Even if it were a particularly deadly flu, it isn't significantly more problematic than many other years in living memory, such as the 2018-2019 to 2019 season. To me, all of these numbers and factors still distract us from my main reason for calling this pandemic an orchestrated media event, the clearly fake footage of people dropping dead in China. There is no explanation for the people falling down other than some kind of manipulation. Those people were either dropped with some kind of weapon, or they were acting, and in any case, no government or media outlet has bothered to try to explain it. Again, these people falling down were the initial reason for the very serious response in other countries, and everything that followed stemmed from that. If the initial reason for the lockdowns and mandates were faked, then the pandemic itself is a fake event, created by media and politicians for reasons we can only speculate about. We are used to seeing the types of symptoms that have been reported in the West. Flu-like symptoms, respiratory infection-type symptoms, We alternative people don't have ventilators to offer. And quite honestly, I didn't even understand the use of one before they were in the news. At the beginning of the event, I misspoke on podcast, calling them respirators. We don't use them, so I didn't know. But I didn't see how they could be helpful. The story behind the ventilators is that the human body doesn't like having a tube jammed down the throat. We tend to have to give serious drugs to a person to get them into a state where they can receive such treatment. One of these drugs is fentanyl, which by mainstream accounts, kills many people on its own. I consider deaths from fentanyl to be a pandemic in itself, especially from street drugs being laced with it. Several people that I know, all of them under the age of 40, have died in recent years from fentanyl overdose. In the small town I live in, Kirkland Lake, Ontario, fentanyl appears to be the leading cause of death. I am told by people who do know about ventilators that in some cases they can truly save someone's life. I am sure there are some emergencies where they are warranted, but the mainstream media reported that upwards of 80% of people who were put on ventilators during the pandemic died. 80% is much more than the 1% risk of dying from the virus itself. Would you rather face an 80% chance of dying or a more than 99% chance of surviving without the treatment? To me, an 80% death rate from this treatment is mass murder. I assume that if ventilators were not part of the response to this virus, many more people would have survived, which would have put the actual percentage of people at risk of dying even lower than the already low figure of less than 1%. My own grandfather recently died on a ventilator. He didn't have the beer virus. He called my mother from the hospital, telling her that he was basically fine and he would be home the following day. That evening, for some reason... The hospital decided to put him on a ventilator, and he was dead soon after. I assume it is the drugs they put him on before even putting the tube in that really killed him. And I assume that many other people were submitted to these drugs and the tube down the throat completely unnecessarily. He was old, and in my opinion, he should not have been put on any drugs, because his age and existing health conditions put him at high risk of dying from such drugs. Fentanyl kills plenty of young people who do not have diseases, and it is much more likely to kill an older person with other health problems. Why someone with an infection would want to go through this is beyond me, but I assume that most of them didn't even have a choice. And of course, these people had been bombarded with propaganda about a deadly virus for several months and have been culturally conditioned to trust the doctors. If the real risks of death were presented honestly, and people were given a choice about the ventilators based on reasonably informed consent, I assume many of them would have chosen to just go home rather than face a near-certain death on a ventilator. Even worse is the fact that most of these people were deprived of the ability to see their loved ones one last time, again under the false pretenses of a deadly viral threat. I would rather go to a sauna than a hospital. The numbers they report as success with the ventilators are terrible. This treatment in response to this virus is definitely not a success. On my end of the question-and-answer world, Every person who has reported to me that someone died of the beer virus said that they were on a ventilator. All of them. In the two years we have been dealing with this pandemic, I have not yet had one person tell me of anyone they know who died without being on a ventilator. This is not a qualified fact. It is only based on reports I receive. But you would think that at least one person would have told me that someone they know actually died of this thing at home or in any other situation than on a ventilator. Many people reported that they were tested positive or they developed something like the news was describing, a respiratory flu, they got better. No one who died, reported to me, did so at home. They were all on a ventilator. I repeat this to emphasize my conclusion that most of the deaths that were reported as victims of the beer virus were actually victims of murder from a horrendous treatment procedure. But this was really the main treatment offered by the allopathic profession. It seems more than sloppy to me. There were even a few pharmaceuticals that had reported success against the virus, yet this information was severely suppressed and censored on both mainstream media outlets and social media. Regular medical doctors and alternative practitioners and researchers had their posts deleted or their accounts disabled or deleted because they talked about successful pharmaceutical treatments that did not include a ventilator. I guess they really wanted us on ventilators. There are some pharmaceuticals that I believe are very helpful. They can save lives, definitely. Short-term use of some pharmaceuticals is included in the necessary toolkit we humans have at our disposal, particularly for acute problems like infections and accidents. If you get hit by a car, I have no problem with you taking pharmaceutical painkillers. Vitamins and minerals will not help you as much in the immediate term. Vitamins and minerals are required for long-term health and longevity, not for dealing with the immediate consequences of accidents or infections. This simply does not apply to chronic problems like most of what we have covered in this book. Long-term pharmaceutical use is unanimously bad. Having said all of that, if certain pharmaceuticals did show a better result than the awful results of the ventilators, I would be all for it. If they save lives, use them, short-term. I thought that most of the censorship on social media and regular media was about natural things like zinc and vitamin D or herbal concoctions. I thought these outlets were in the pocket of pharmaceutical companies and wouldn't censor a positive outcome of a pharmaceutical drug. I was wrong, and it seems to me that the real interest of these companies is to promote the use of ventilators. This conclusion troubles me deeply because it suggests that, despite the obvious allegiance to pharmaceutical companies, media outlets would rather see us dead on a ventilator than use a pharmaceutical drug. Even as numbers rose on the television for the two years of the pandemic, I haven't in this whole time seen or heard of anything that looks like something other than a flu. I haven't seen or heard of anything like Chinese people falling over in the streets. Chinese people in western cities did not fall down in the streets. Many people have gotten sick. Many people get sick every year. If the period we are measuring is now over a year, the chances are very good that many people would have been sick of something like this in this time frame. I don't know what the beer virus really is. From what I can tell, there is a flu present. Maybe 2020 was a worse year than normal, like 2018, a relatively bad year for flu viruses. I can't tell if it was a bad year because the numbers don't make sense. Other deaths from chronic diseases don't just disappear, and neither does the regular flu if there's a new one that year. I also don't trust PCR tests, and I never did. The guy who invented them said you could use the test to find whatever you want. I believe him. What I do know is that I have never experienced this type of totalitarianism in response to a health crisis. I am tempted to pause for a tirade about my personal inconveniences during the closures and lockdowns, but I have complained loudly elsewhere. My life has been interfered with in ways I have never experienced from governments before. I have never seen economies forced to halt. The legal entitlement of a disease falls under the jurisdiction of licensed medical professionals. One consequence of this entitlement is that the profession is licensed to deliver medicines and other treatments in response to disease. The 2020 event is called a disease. Therefore, this is the jurisdiction of the medical profession. Though I have many problems with the classification of disease, I do not have a problem with this legal entitlement, when appropriate. One benefit of licensing the care of practitioners is that politicians cannot legally deliver medicine or give medical advice. My primary contention with the chemical fluoride added to public water supplies is not that it is harmful. It could be beneficial. I don't care. It requires proof to demonstrate an effect either way, and I don't want to deal with proof. We can handle such questions with logic. Fluoride is added into the water not for purification purposes. Chlorine is added into water for purification purposes. I have a separate problem with that, but for another day. Fluoride is added into public water supplies for a medical purpose. The medical purpose is to prevent tooth decay. That's the reason they give for adding the stuff. But since this is a medical purpose, by law, this is the jurisdiction of medical professionals. This is a medicine to treat a health problem, tooth decay. Doctors are supposed to be the only profession licensed to prescribe medication for health problems. People in this system are supposed to retain the choice of what medicines to put in their body. They are supposed to be informed on the known benefits and risks of the proposed treatment. They are supposed to give their informed consent to the treatment after discussing the benefits and risks. Ultimately, what they do in response to a medical problem is their choice. Their doctor works for them. They do not have to take the doctor's advice. They don't have to fulfill the prescription, or go on a ventilator, or cover their face, and so on. Politicians are not doctors, and should not be allowed to prescribe medication to anyone, let alone entire populations. In my profession, I'm expected to give some kind of disclaimer that my advice is not legally acceptable medical advice. And I expect media and politicians to adhere to the same guidelines. My problem with fluoride is political. I don't care if doctors think it will help my teeth or not. I don't feel the need to use it, and I care about my choice to make that decision. Doctors are there as an option. I can go and see my doctor, and ask his advice. I can choose whether to take his advice or not. My problem with the new disease is also political. I don't really care what viruses are floating around this year or next. I am prepared to face the world to the best of my ability. I choose to support my body's ability to deal with infections by supporting my immune system. I would like to use dramatic words to express my disappointment in my home country, Canada, essentially devastating its own way of life. But to be brief, I don't think business as usual will continue anytime soon. I think unreasonable measures against an invisible threat will continue and may increase. I think this fake event has been used to implement new rules, laws, and government agencies whose sole purpose is to reduce our personal power, freedoms, and legal rights, while tightening the overall control of our lives. I want to hope that borders reopen and that sanity restores, but I am not willing to bet on it. Update. The border between the U.S. and Canada has officially reopened, technically, but I have been denied four times now trying to cross with my car. I am married to a U.S. citizen and my residence application is in process. I have crossed the border numerous times over many years and I have always returned when I said I would. I have no criminal record in either country and no current criminal charges. I have been denied entry a total of six times over the years, including the four times during the pandemic. But my record is one of compliance. I was denied for things that I was honest about, not for smuggling or any form of dishonesty. Though the border is technically open now, And despite my record of compliance, I was still denied entry recently at the supposedly open border. They told me to turn around and fly into America. I wasn't being denied entry entirely. I just was not allowed to cross with my car. Of course, if the goal is to reduce contact between people to reduce the risk of spreading infection, then telling me to fly instead of drive makes absolutely no sense. I will be in contact with far fewer people on the road than in airports and planes. So I do not consider the border to be open, particularly as both countries now require proof of vaccination to enter. This extortion has removed the right for a citizen of either country to exercise informed consent and is not representative of a free country or an open border. There will always be pathogens around. We will always need to support and promote a healthy body and immune system. Chances are we will get sick a few times in life. None of this is new. But the world has changed dramatically because of what I believe to be a fake disease. And my biggest concerns about it are all political. Doctors don't even seem to have much to do with this mess. The frustration felt by the people and the draconian measures imposed are from politicians, not doctors. As far as I can tell, the people behind this pandemic are media spokespeople and politicians. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci has not been an actual medical practitioner for decades. He doesn't see patients. He works with the government on political responses to health issues. He is a researcher and a politician, in my opinion. And despite knowing everything we have covered in this chapter, he chose to promote medical tyranny instead of a reasonable medical response. Incidentally, Dr. Fauci was also the main figure behind promoting the AIDS scare decades ago. And in the opinion of many, including myself, he is largely responsible for everyone who died taking the drug AZT rather than supporting their immune systems. AIDS was the first time that the PCR test was used to diagnose a disease and inflame public fear about a disease. And back then, Carey Mullis, the guy who invented the PCR test and got the Nobel Prize for it, called Fauci a liar and worse, challenged him to debate, and denounced the use of the test for diagnosing the disease. It does indeed seem that Fauci has no interest in honestly communicating what he knows about diseases. This tendency towards dishonesty and sensationalism, I guess, makes him a typical politician. None of what has happened in response to this virus should have happened, because these are medically based decisions, and it was never the business of politicians to make medical decisions for us. We always should have had the choice of whether to use fluoride or not, or subject ourselves to experimental medications or not, or cover our faces or quarantine ourselves, etc., Informed consent no longer exists in the world of medical dictatorships we now live in. That is the best I can do on this subject without detailed analysis. If this is a real virus, I think the response to it is much worse than the infection. Others have said that the cure should not be worse than the disease, and I completely agree. Chapter 11. What is disease, really? Many years ago, I arrived late one night at my friend's apartment. He wasn't there, but he knew I was coming. I had been staying there throughout the summer. We had badly neglected the lawn that summer. The grass was long and full of bugs and other creatures. The door was locked, but the basement window in the back was not locked. I crawled into the house, and I brought fleas in with me from the long grass outside. I know this happened because I had just been there, and there were no fleas. I was tired, and I slept on the couch with my clothes on, and I woke up covered in fleas. I also woke up in another mental dimension, something was amazingly wrong, psychedelically wrong, everything was wrong, I didn't know where or who I was for a moment, the room was kaleidoscopic and I did not feel good at all. I made it to the bathroom, the 10 foot distance felt like it took a while, but I didn't trust my perception of time, I felt drunk but also very sick. In the mirror I was as pale as ever and I was bleeding from my nose my eyes were bloody red as well i used the toilet and there was a lot of blood none of this had ever happened to me i was delirious and it felt hard to even think about what was going on i called my mother she is a school teacher and she happened to work right across the street from my friend's house i told her i needed help and i dragged myself over to her office i had a feeling that i didn't need to go to the hospital i figured i needed antibiotics and fast she took me to our family doctor He agreed with my prognosis, wrote up a prescription for antibiotics, and I picked them up at the pharmacy downstairs. I took the drugs, and I began to feel better quite quickly. I really was worried for a moment. I had never been bleeding from everywhere before. I felt like I was going to die, and I believe to this day that conventional medical treatment saved my life that day. I stayed with my mother for a few weeks. In that time, I rested a lot. I watched a lot of TV on the couch with blankets and hot beverages and soups, and that's pretty much it. Modern grandma's recipe. I don't have anything personal against my doctor. There is a certain hostility that can be found in the alternative world for the failures of the modern medical professions. A certain indignation. Righteous indignation. Many people who have found alternative paths to health carry an underlying outrage that their conventional doctors failed to help them. I was born with health problems and I grew up with pains in many forms. My doctors could have known about the nutritional strategies that eventually did get me out of pain. When I did eventually find the right doses of the right stuff I needed, the pain I had been living with for 25 years disappeared in less than a week. I am, deep down, upset that I missed so many healthful years. I could have thrived in my youth, but I was held back by chronic pain. It is unfortunate that my doctor, and his profession, is not required to learn about nutrition, because it was nutrition that eliminated my symptoms. But it's not his fault. It's a shame. My mother also didn't know that her nutrition would cause problems in me. Also not her fault. Also unfortunate. And it is unfortunate that my pain, and most of the pain we deal with in the public, was preventable and reversible long ago. When I caught that bug from that flea, it was pretty clear what had happened. When I tell the story, I don't refer to the incident as a disease. I caught a particularly horrible bug. My doctors gave me a few potential disease names for the pains and problems I experienced growing up. The names never seemed to matter, because the explanations were vague and unsatisfying, and the treatments offered were usually harmful. I didn't like pharmaceutical drugs, and they didn't seem to help my pains anyway. I got better results with over-the-counter pain creams than from decades of searching for answers from my regular doctor. And then I was completely relieved of the main problems that had bothered me a lifetime in under a week. Hopefully having said all of this, you can see my point of view about the nature of disease. So what is a disease? Aside from the legal aspect of the word, a disease is a belief. In some cases, such as syphilis, we can easily identify a pathogenic cause. It is sensible to believe in bugs, because they can get us, and we need to act when that happens. But everything else we have talked about is a name for a cluster of symptoms. Symptoms are all the result of unhealthy bodies. Various things can contribute to stresses, and various things can defend against them. It doesn't seem useful to think of these things as diseases. Sometimes we are presented with a new disease, and I think we ought to ask serious questions about these new diseases. I think we should retain the legal rights to support our body the way we choose, and take the medical advice we choose. I do not think governments should be empowered to make health decisions for individuals or groups. For the common health challenges that face so many people in my country and others, I encourage a shift in the way we think about disease. Identifying as a diseased patient or having a disease that is not transmitted is not correct or helpful. Thinking about most diseases as something we catch rather than something we encourage or discourage does not help us understand the nature, development, prevention, or reversal of the symptoms. It does not lead us to better treatment. It leads us further into the mess of the medical establishment. No one should be on long-term medication for health problems that are preventable or reversible, and none of us should fear diseases that don't exist. I think we should stop using the word disease. If we catch an infection, we can simply refer to it as an infection, and we should all be able to understand what is happening. If our body is failing us or falling apart, there is no practical value in calling this process a disease. Disease. A lack of ease. Once well, but not now. This might have been what the word once meant. Now it means anything the medical industry wants research and treatment money for. Disease isn't cured with medical treatment, and it never will be. The medical world now wants to call practically everything a disease. They want to treat obesity and depression under the same legal umbrella as infections and accidents. When something is called a disease, it can be paid for by insurance. Whether that treatment works or not is not the business of the insurance companies. They trust the medical establishment to define disease and treatment appropriately. The medical establishment has failed us deeply by giving a disease name to everything from anxiety to addiction. The absolute best that medical treatment can do is ease or relieve symptoms, often at the cost of another function in the body. The medical industry has a terrible track record even for this. The mainstream medical industry cannot currently cure heartburn, yet we trust them with cancer. Our alternative industry only exists because so many people fail to find relief from the mainstream medical professions. We do not need to put common health problems and degeneration in the care of licensed professionals. We can take care of ourselves and live a long, healthful life. I and others are committed to helping average people understand the root causes of their health problems and offer them advice on how to reverse those problems. If you found this book to be helpful, I ask that you share it with someone you know. Together we can create a healthier world, and it starts with this information. I, for one, do not want to see any of my friends or family complain about common aches, pains, weight problems, headaches, and the many minor symptoms the average person accepts as normal. And I definitely don't want any of them to struggle with a chronic problem that their doctors would call a disease. If you would like specific advice from us regarding yourself or someone you know, I encourage you to contact us. Our contact information is in the More section of this book. We promise to respond to every message and to give you our best advice, for free, as long as we live. The same principles that relieve minor symptoms also apply to the more serious issues. People tend to get freaked out by scary words like cancer and autoimmunity, but the nutritional advice for supporting the body's ability to be healthy and heal itself is the same for headaches as it is for miscarriages, and diseases named after German doctors that you've probably never heard of. If a doctor tells you that a disease is genetic, you can take that to mean that they have no idea what causes, prevents, or reverses that problem. Blaming genes is only the latest scapegoat in a long history of failed disease theories. Your great-grandmother might have been told that bad humors were the cause of her health problems, and that is as true as the current genetic theory of disease transmission. Genes are dependent on the environment, and though I avoided technical discussion in this book, you should know that it is now approaching conventional wisdom that this is true. We know that genes have not changed much in the last hundred years, but the prevalence of diseases have changed dramatically. Our environment, food, EMF, stress, nutrient availability, has changed, not our genes. We can rectify most of the problems caused by the modern way of life by eliminating the worst of the foods in our grocery stores and adding the nutrients that are missing from the food. If it hasn't been made clear already, pharmaceutical drugs are not the answer to chronic disease. Your doctor will not tell you that the blood pressure drug will cure your blood pressure problem. At best, it will manage the problem. And if the doctor is honest, they will tell you that the list of expected side effects are much longer than the one potential benefit of reducing the blood pressure. The same is true for all drugs that are marketed to manage symptoms. None of them deal in any way with the root problem, and none of them are expected to permanently reverse the symptoms. The only way to permanently reverse symptoms is to permanently change the factors that cause the symptoms. And unfortunately, this is something doctors are not required to know anything about. If you are shot with a bullet, hit by a car, or show symptoms of a serious infection, you should go to a medical doctor. Everything else is in your control. Epilogue After this book was first published, I realized that I had missed one very common and one very fake disease that comes up all the time in our daily dealings with the public. Sleep apnea. Sleep apnea isn't a disease, and actually isn't even a problem. Sleep apnea The temporary cessation of breathing while sleeping is a completely normal behavior in all mammals. All mammals periodically stop breathing when they are asleep. This is yet another thing that has been declared a disease simply because human researchers and practitioners are not educated on animal nutrition or behavior. Probably because sleep researchers only study sleep, no one seems to have noticed that people and animals also periodically stop breathing during the day. Unless you pay attention to it, you probably don't take full breaths, either. Most people, most of the time, only expel half of the air in their lungs, leaving the bottom half stagnant and unrecycled. This is why conscious breathing is something we recommend all the time, and all it means is to pay attention to your breathing, and take full, deep breaths more often. Deep breathing has an immediate relaxing effect. When we are in fight-or-flight mode, we breathe more rapidly and less fully. Our world isn't exactly set up to help us relax, and one of the consequences of a stress-filled life is the lack of full, deep breaths. Several meditation techniques focus only on the breath, and everyone who has reported improvements with such programs is proof of how important breathing is. Nobody needs a machine to help them sleep. People do report improvement with the CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, machines. But that treatment is missing the cause of the problem. Apnea is not the problem, because apnea is normal. People go to sleep clinics because they have other sleep problems. Snoring, restlessness, and breathing problems in general have nothing to do with apnea. Snoring and breathing problems are probably caused by a digestive problem, which prevents key essential nutrients from being absorbed, which are responsible for lung function. Lung problems are nutrient problems, and possibly bacterial problems. These are food and nutrient problems, again having nothing to do with the temporary cessation of breathing that we call apnea. Being overweight is the most common risk factor for having one of these sleep problems. Being overweight is bad for the body in general. A body isn't functioning optimally if it is overweight. If the body is lacking in the nutrients we need for proper lung function, the person might have a sleep problem. These people will also have problems during the day. Insomnia itself is a mineral deficiency. The bone and joint group of minerals govern muscle function, and insomnia is a muscle problem. When you go to a sleep clinic with insomnia, they may very well just say that you have sleep apnea as an overall attempted explanation. The CPAP machine might help the person sleep better, but in my experience, if they don't deal with the food problems and nutritional deficiencies, they will still have trouble sleeping. You don't have to be overweight to have a sleep problem or a breathing problem, but it happens more in overweight people than otherwise. Malabsorption or outright deficiency in the good fat nutrient group can cause breathing problems in skinny people too. It can also cause people to be unable to gain weight. The point here is that the diagnosis of apnea does absolutely nothing to address any of these problems. People with sleep problems or breathing problems need to get off the bad foods and consume all 90 essential nutrients appropriate to their body weight. I also realized that I didn't really mention heart disease, the most common cause of death in the world. The first thing to note is that something will kill all of us. If we live to 120 years old, it will probably be a heart attack or stroke that finally kills us, and likely on a cold night in our sleep. This means that you can die peacefully of age and still be listed as a victim of heart disease. There are several types of heart disease, and all of them are nutritional. Again, eventually the heart will fail, even if we are totally healthy. But many people die prematurely of a heart failure in some form. The bad foods contribute to heart problems in at least two ways. First, problematic grains impede the absorption of the fatty nutrients most prominently, and several of these nutrients are directly involved in heart health. Look at the label of any omega-3 product on the shelf and it probably says, may prevent heart attack and stroke. The reason that they are able to say this on the label is because this is a qualified health claim granted by the FDA after Dr. Joel Wallach sued them over it. A qualified health claim means that sufficient evidence has been presented to legally make this claim. Before Dr. Wallach sued the FDA over omega-3 supplements, it was already legal to claim that eating foods rich in omega-3 may prevent heart attack and stroke. More simply, it is well established that this one nutrient deficiency is a factor in heart attack and stroke. The claim extends to various forms of thrombosis as well, because thrombotic problems are essentially a problem with blood clotting, and the fatty nutrients, particularly omega-3, are required for the blood to maintain proper viscosity. Blood is supposed to clot at certain times, but in a state of fatty nutrient deficiency, it is liable to clot inappropriately, causing a clog in the artery, potentially leading to a heart attack or stroke. Cardiomyopathy heart attack, also called enlarged heart, athlete's heart, and sometimes a genetic heart condition, is linked to another extremely important nutrient, selenium. Selenium is fat-soluble, and thus is part of the good fat group that comes up again and again when talking about common diseases. Selenium and omega-3 are cofactors, and both are required for a healthy heart. Congestive heart failure is caused by a single vitamin deficiency, thiamine. and we humans have known about this for at least 60 years Because this is what was killing dolphins and porpoises in captivity until dr. Wallach figured out the problem The animals were eating fish that contained an enzyme, thiaminase, that basically destroys thiamin Since they were eating more of this enzyme than they were eating thiamine, they regularly died of congestive heart failure after only a short time in captivity the solution was to change the types of fish being fed to captive mammals, and to supplement them with all of the vitamins, including thiamine. This problem is also understood in standard agriculture. A bull costs a farmer about four dollars to $5,000, and so it is a priority to keep the animal healthy for several breeding years. It makes no sense to let any animal die of congestive heart failure, because the cause and reversal is completely understood. The cost of correcting a thiamine deficiency in a bull via a few thiamine injections is less than $10. With a quick search online, I found a 100 milliliter container of injectable thiamine for $8.95. The recommended dose of that product is 0.25 milliliters per 100 pounds of body weight for a large animal like a horse or cow. The first injection will probably save the animal's life. And for a 2,400 pound bull, That $8.95 container provides over 16 injections appropriate to the body weight. That's a pretty good deal, and I think humans should take note of how cheap it can be to reverse a life-threatening problem like congestive heart failure. The second reason foods can contribute to heart disease is because artery problems can be caused by food. You can see that it really doesn't make sense to lump all these problems together in one name, as congestive heart failure is very different from thrombotic stroke. Blood sugar problems and blood cholesterol problems tend to go hand in hand, and there is a definite, well-understood connection between blood sugar and a hardening of the cell membrane. The cell membrane is supposed to be semi-permeable, meaning it lets some things into the cell and some things out of the cell, selectively. The cell membrane is made partially of cholesterol, and when there is a blood sugar problem, this cholesterol hardens, making it more difficult for things to get in and out of the cell. One of the consequences of this is more sugar and more cholesterol trapped in the blood, unable to be delivered into the cells. We assume that it is not the blood sugar causing this membrane hardening, rather that both problems are caused by the same general nutrient deficiencies. In any case, when the body is unhealthy, it can have either a blood sugar problem, or a blood cholesterol problem, or both. More cholesterol in the blood, in theory, will impact overall blood circulation. But this is not the real problem, as we see it. Several populations of people, such as the Arctic Inuit, or Eskimos, and the African Maasai, eat much more cholesterol than the average Westerner. The Inuit diet is almost all cholesterol. And yet these people do not die of what we call heart diseases. So high cholesterol itself is not a problem. Carnivore animals do not get atherosclerosis, the buildup of fats on the artery walls or arteriosclerosis, a hardening of artery walls. But herbivore animals do, especially herbivores in captivity. Our explanation for this is that these animals are largely eating oxidized grains and other foods. All foods will oxidize if they are left around in hot barrels and warehouses, and this tends to happen with big mammals who eat tons of food. The food sits around and it oxidizes. You can smell a batch of old peanuts or soybeans and tell immediately that something is off. The oils have turned rancid. Animals that eat this stuff will have an artery problem. And our explanation for this is free radical damage to the insides of the veins. Foods are absorbed into the blood and free radicals will impact the walls of the blood vessels. These animals do not eat cholesterol, and so it is silly to tell humans that their atherosclerosis or arteriosclerosis is caused by eating cholesterol when this is not what occurs in animals. All of this is merely to say, in more detail than we covered in the book, that the bad foods cause much of what we call heart disease, and nutrient deficiencies cause the rest. This is why we recommend both avoiding the bad foods and supplementing with all 90 essential nutrients. Humans who do so should avoid premature death from heart disease, stroke, and any of the vascular problems available. Finally, I failed to mention dementias in the book. Alzheimer's disease was on the list of good fat diseases, but I didn't go into detail. Alzheimer's gets most of the attention these days, but it is definitely not the only form of dementia. The reason why Alzheimer's is on the good fat deficiency list is because the official problem in Alzheimer's is an unraveling of the white matter That coats all nerves. The white matter, the insulating material around the wires of nerves, is called myelin. Alzheimer's is characterized by demyelination, an unraveling of the myelin. Obviously, wires without insulation are a fire hazard, and it is a similar situation when our nerves lose their protective coating. Myelin is actually much more complicated than a mere insulation, as it is directly involved with the transmission of neurotransmitters and much more that is beyond the scope of this book. Problems with the nerves themselves or the myelin coating are also present in seizure disorders, and we give the same advice for any of the dementias that we would for any neurological problem. Alzheimer's is in the spotlight these days, but technically, Alzheimer's can only be properly diagnosed at autopsy because we currently lack the ability to see the microscopic demyelination in a living patient. So, I assume that most Alzheimer's patients have actually been misdiagnosed. And the reason I say this is because the other dementias do not involve demyelination. And since demyelination takes a long time to develop, I assume most dementias are simpler nutrient deficiencies. The proof of this is if a patient is able to recover their memory and function in a short time. Demyelination takes a long time to happen, and a long time to reverse. Months, at least. And if a person recovers in a week, they definitely did not have Alzheimer's. I assume the most common form of dementia is actually vitamin B12 deficiency dementia. I didn't make that name up. It's a real disease. Just like the symptoms of scurvy appear with vitamin C deficiency, symptoms of dementia appear with deficiencies in several of the B vitamins, particularly B12. Humans have known about these vitamin deficiencies for hundreds of years, and I really don't know why it is barely ever mentioned that B vitamin deficiency can cause dementia. Doctors speak as if we have eradicated vitamin deficiency problems with our modern food fortification, but I see scurvy and rickets all the time in people at the grocery store. I also see dementia all the time, and the first thing I assume is a vitamin deficiency. Pellagra is one of the oldest disease names that is still in use. Pellagra is the name for vitamin B3, or niacin, deficiency and has always been described with the three Ds, diarrhea, dermatitis, and dementia. The fourth D is death. I don't know why a doctor wouldn't want to cover this basic base before giving a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. If their patient got better quickly with a simple vitamin regimen, Alzheimer's could be safely ruled out. This one vitamin deficiency is also known to cause several other problems that are mostly given separate disease names these days without ever mentioning vitamin deficiency as a possible cause. Niacin deficiency can cause sensitivity to sunlight, hair loss, swelling, tongue inflammation, trouble sleeping, weakness, mental confusion or aggression, ataxia, which is a lack of coordination, paralysis of extremities, Peripheral neuritis, just nerve damage, enlarged or weakened heart, as well as various psychosensory and emotional disturbances. All of this is in regular textbooks about human and animal nutrition. A similar list could be drawn for every one of the vitamins and the rest of the essential nutrients. The list above can be symptoms of many diseases with foreign sounding Latin or German names but chances are good that these symptoms and many others that are called diseases will simply go away with a decent supplement program and avoiding foods like gluten that disrupt absorption of these nutrients. Many people report full recovery from these types of symptoms just by going gluten-free. Alzheimer's and the other main dementias like Wernicke-Korsakoff dementia involve more serious structural damage than vitamin deficiency dementia. The human body is an absolute miracle of healing. The human body can live for decades on potato chips and soda, and it will use absolutely anything it can to get the job of repairing tissues done. In practice, people with dementia often rebound quite quickly when they are given the right advice and good supplements, and all of these, I assume, were simple vitamin and mineral deficiencies. The vascular dementias, like Wernicke-Korsakoff, are more than simple deficiencies, because they are coupled with tissue damage. That tissue damage is from eating the wrong foods we have discussed. The recommendation for these people is more than just avoiding the bad foods and taking the 90 essential nutrients. We also recommend consuming a lot of cholesterol and other fatty foods that are not burned. This is because the nervous system, including the myelin, is made largely from cholesterol and the other good fats. The brain and nervous system are part of the good fat system, and so eating more good fat is a huge part of our advice. In addition, it is wise to boost the several key nutrients in this fat system, particularly selenium and the omegas. Reversing dementia really can be that simple, but there is one more confounding factor that really gets in the way of this healing. Statin drugs. Drugs that lower cholesterol actually stop the body from producing cholesterol and other essential functions. The body needs cholesterol. The body makes some of its own cholesterol. Cholesterol. Cholesterol has numerous vital roles, some of which have been mentioned, such as the cell membrane, and it is part of the structure of the nervous system. Cholesterol is also what the sex hormones and adrenal hormones are derived from. We can't synthesize vitamin D from sunlight without cholesterol in our skin. There are many more essential roles of cholesterol, but the point here is that it is very important. When a person takes a drug that interferes with the cholesterol system, they will inevitably develop a disease. One of those potential diseases is Alzheimer's. We call Alzheimer's a physician-caused disease because limiting cholesterol intake does almost nothing to blood cholesterol. Doctors know this, and that is why they recommend cholesterol-lowering drugs. Lowering cholesterol intake doesn't do much because the body will compensate for the deficiency by producing more cholesterol itself. Along with other bad advice, such as avoiding salt, which is required to break fats down in the stomach before they go into the intestines for absorption, taking a cholesterol-lowering drug practically guarantees that some form of dementia will develop. Also practically guaranteed is another problem in the good fat system. Skin, lungs, hormones, soft tissues all over the body, etc. I have avoided going into detail about the harm that pharmaceutical drugs can potentially cause because the topic deserves a book unto itself. Much of this book was about broad categories of disease, and we could have gone into great detail on any specific diseases, but they all fall into the categories we have discussed. By discussing these categories, a large part of the point was that pharmaceutical drugs are not appropriate for dealing with these types of problems. If drugs are unnecessary for dealing with chronic problems, then any harm caused by those drugs was also unnecessary. Though this book was not about drugs, I do see the overuse of pharmaceuticals as one of the biggest problems in modern society. We already had it bad enough with a food system depleted of essential nutrients and foods that physically harm us, but we have been put into a situation where we are nearly guaranteed to be even more harmed by seeking medical treatment for the problems caused by our foods and lack of nutrients. All drugs have side effects, including death. It is made to seem like these side effects are rare or unexpected. But based on the data of every drug, these really should just be called effects, because they are normal consequences of consuming the drugs, and they are completely expected. Even drugs that can save our life, such as antibiotics, have expected, regular, negative effects on the body. In my position, I know that the average person will have health problems even with no history of pharmaceutical drug use. That is an expected outcome of eating modern foods and failing to consume all 90 essential nutrients. But I also know that anyone on any pharmaceutical drug should expect less progress with our nutritional strategies. If they are on the two worst types of drugs mentioned in the book, statin drugs and stomach acid lowering drugs, then I expect them to make no progress at all, no matter what they do, if they choose to stay on those drugs. Legally we can't tell anyone to take or not take a drug, but we can talk about them and I give them my honest opinion that those two types of drugs will make it basically impossible for them to improve, even with the cleanest of eating and the best supplements in the world. We can talk about whether a drug has withdrawal concerns or not, but ultimately we have to encourage the person to work with their doctor or doctors about lowering doses or stopping any drug. Most drugs, in our opinion, should be weaned, but the statins and stomach acid drugs have no benefit to weaning or withdrawal concerns. The stomach drugs will stop the stomach from working properly, even in low doses, and so there is just no benefit to weaning. It will only prolong their misery. Statins, similarly, still work in low doses, and since there are no withdrawal concerns, it simply doesn't make sense to do any nutritional changes until the drug is stopped. If a person is on multiple drugs of any type, I expect the person to continue to have health problems until they are weaned off. All of the time we get people who tell us that many of their symptoms have improved with our advice, but they still have this or that thing bothering them. Most often, the person is still on some drug, even an over-the-counter NSAID or antihistamine. They want further advice from me about more things to do nutritionally, but I know that the problem is likely being caused by the drug, however innocuous it might seem. Many people have speculated a connection between the rising prevalence of female problems, like endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome, to the use of chemical birth control in women. And I do agree. It is very common for women to come to us with female problems and tell us about a history of problems starting with their use of chemical birth control. I cannot quantify this properly, but in the very least, I do believe there is a connection. Logically, it makes sense that messing with the hormone system could lead to problems in the hormone system. But unfortunately, young women are still prescribed birth control for all sorts of things having nothing to do with preventing a pregnancy. Women can be recommended birth control for reducing acne, regulating menstruation, and easing cramps. Acne is caused by eating the wrong foods or and nutrient deficiencies, and irregular, light, or heavy, or painful menstruation are also caused by the same basic deficiencies. All of these nutrient groups and symptom groups have been mentioned in this book. A lack or imbalance in the good fats is the most likely cause of any hormone or skin problem, and a deficiency in the bone and joint group is the most likely cause of any muscle or pain problem. Blood sugar problems can contribute to or cause any female problem, and I expect any women with any of these problems to have an obvious blood sugar problem on their list of symptoms. None of this has anything to do with pharmaceuticals, and in my opinion, it is at best criminally negligent for any professional to recommend chemical hormone disruption for a nutritional problem, leaving aside the actual issue of birth control. Unfortunately, many people choose to listen to their doctors instead of apply basic nutritional changes and logic. I do sympathize with them, because we really are indoctrinated to believe that the doctor knows best. The reality is, of course, they often do not have a clue what causes, prevents, or reverses the problem in question. This is a tragedy on an unimaginable scale. We will always require medical professionals in emergency situations. But it is not emergencies that most of us go to a doctor for. We really can prevent and reverse most of the problems we can name, simply by being smart about our nutrition. The best we can do for people who are involved with the medical system is to teach them the things in this book and inform them that they are in fact in charge of what goes in and what does not go into their body. They do not have to take anyone's advice. They do not have to take any drugs if they don't want to. And they can indeed get control of their health without any doctor's. One day medical doctors might be taught about nutrition, but I really wouldn't recommend waiting for this to happen on its own. For one thing, the payment structure would have to be changed. Doctors are paid largely by insurance for treating health problems. As outlined at the beginning of this book, treatment is done with drugs, tests, and surgeries. There simply isn't an existing framework for compensating medical doctors based on preventing diseases or reversing them with nutritional strategies. We get paid on product sales. And doctors are not allowed to sell products. They're up against a wall, really. If they change their own ways, they'll be broke. In any case, they aren't taught any of this, and I wouldn't expect the medical schools to completely change their way of thinking about diseases. It is up to you to change the way that you, your friends, and your family understand and respond to diseases and health problems. Similarly, I don't have hope in the alternative fields either. Naturopathic doctors are now essentially being trained the same as standard medical doctors. They are taught largely to rely on pharmaceuticals and surgeries with some herbs and vitamins mixed in. They call this mixed or complementary medicine, but really it is standard mainstream medicine with a tiny bit of nutrition or plant medicine involved. Though I believe that both allopathic and naturopathic systems are required for a balanced medical marketplace, I do not believe they complement each other in most cases. If the antibiotic saves your life, you do need to replenish your good bacteria, which is in this sense, complementary. The two strategies are opposite, but both necessary in this particular case. Most other uses of pharmacology have no corresponding complementary natural strategy. A statin drug will completely negate any benefit from doing the opposite, which is consuming cholesterol. If you take a statin, it eliminates any benefit from following my nutritional advice. There is no mix of benefits. You will get the harm from the drug and no benefit from anything else. Similar statements could be made with practically any other type of drug. A beta blocker stops the heart from working correctly, and it makes no sense to support and promote a healthy heart with nutrition while simultaneously using a drug that interferes with a healthy heart. I expect the person doing chemotherapy to die from the chemotherapy, regardless of any other mixed treatments and so on through the list of available pharmaceutical treatments. Even veterinarians are now prescribing drugs to dogs and cats to manage diabetes and arthritis, which are diseases they should have been taught are prevented with standard animal feeds. They should be giving pet owners the same advice we give our human customers. Don't feed the animal human food or it will get human diseases. All the essential nutrients for the animal are in the animal food designed for it and human food throws off this balance. They should know this, but the modern animal and human practitioners of almost any name have been inculcated in the allopathic belief system. Allopathic medicine believes that humans, and now animals, are simply bags of bones waiting to break. They believe that the best way to manage this inevitable deterioration is with pharmaceutical drugs and surgeries. This belief is unfortunate, but fortunately, you do not have to believe it yourself. Alright, I hope you enjoyed that. I appreciate you for listening all the way through. If you got value from this recording, please feel free to share it with somebody you know. If you would like a health recommendation from us, from me, you can reach out to any of the Instagram accounts in the description of this podcast or on my website, notusbooks.org. You can find all of my links. You can even email me. This is what I do for a living. Basically, just give people health recommendations. And of course, we make commissions from the sale of products. So you don't pay for this. This is completely free. We give you the information. We give you the advice. And it's up to you what you do with it. Thank you once again. Until next time.